0: And welcome back to Skeptics and Seekers. Uh, I'm Dale, representing the Christian or Seeker side.
1: And uh, I'm David, the skeptic.
0: And uh, today we have a special guest with you.
1: Uh, no one.
0: Welcome to the show, no
1: one. You um, are the <laughs> special guest, listener. You are the special guest. <laughs> Not the you. guest that we uh, were looking for, but you'll do in a pinch
0: we were having uh, there's uh, some tech we were supposed to have Tony Cost on to discuss the ontological argument but um, he's having some technical issues so he he had to cancel for today hopefully we'll we'll bring him back on to to discuss that or another topic Um, but in the meantime David and I have a show to put on um, that neither of us are, are totally prepared for. So Not
1: at all prepared for. In fact, we uh, did a quick conversation when we realized that Tony wasn't going to be on the show just 10 minutes before the show, before the recording. And uh, so from that, we're doing a show. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So
0: Yeah. And, and what we'll do... Um, because neither of us are prepared for an in-depth topic, and I'm, I'm working on my show, solo shows for, on the existence of God, um, David and I decided, okay, well, let's just speak off the cuff uh, in general about, about you know natural theology and, and give sort of an overview on um, the, ex- the arguments that Christians give for the existence of God, and um, I guess give, give our takes on them or what they are and that sort of thing, yeah. just sc- sort of give an overview.
1: Or, or uh, exactly. as I put it, the the major apologetics of the day. So uh, you hear uh, Christian apologetics—that term tossed about—and uh, you know the various things that apologists have up their sleeves. And so we're going to just look at some of those apologetics. Since today's show was actually going to be very apologetics heavy, uh, we might we might start with that one. That was going to be the ontological argument, and uh, we'll work from there.
0: Okay. Um, okay, uh, so so yeah, I wanted to, so for my opening speech, um, I guess I'll give you guys a, a lay of the land that I'm, I was already going to give you in my solo show, but okay, so what what are some of the arguments that we can give? Um, and I actually like uh, the classification of putting all of the arguments into overall categories based on how you argue, and on that front, I, I think there are only three, there are three fundamental Uh, Sorry, four fundamental categories of argument for the existence of God. So the first is my old favorite, the subjective evidence, the properly basic belief um, through your your senses divinitatis, your divine sense. Um, That's the first major category uh, that I think provides warrant for God's existence. Uh, We're going to ignore that, so that's outside of natural theology. And I know David's not going to ignore that and not fond of that. So yeah just be aware that's that's the first way. I'm, to... I'm
1: all in favor of the census akunamatata. matata.
0: Okay. Um, and then we come to the objective evidences or arguments. Um, so I categorize the three ones. There are, there are cosmological arguments, there are teleological arguments, and then there are ontological arguments. Um, so this is sort of painting the entire field in a broad bo- brush based on the form of argumentation. So cosmological arguments will try to argue, uh, look, we have this feature um, about existence. uh, And now what explains that we need a first cause or an ultimate explanation to explain that feature? That explanation is God. And on this front, um, I actually break it up. There's the traditional cosmological arguments and then there's what I call extended cosmological arguments um so is this getting into too much detail you think david no
1: it's it's fine in fact uh i'll just interject and say i probably like these arguments as apologetics best simply uh yeah the cosmological category because at least there is a there there you know, we're, we're arguing about the cosmos. <laughs> we're arguing about things that we can see and touch and uh, have a mutual understanding uh, of. And so, you know, we, we have differences, of course, um, as we get into the arguments, but at least it starts with something that everybody can agree with, unlike, uh, you know, the census divinity, the the argument. Um, besides, you know, we can't even agree that that exists. But we do agree that the universe exists, and so I, I think it gives us something a little bit more meaty to sink our teeth into, right?
0: And and so, um, but before you say that, so so what David just said is true about traditional cosmological arguments. Usually, these take a grand or cosmic feature that's that's relatively uncontroversial. Um, so you know, the universe exists, or something exists. Uh, yep, pretty pretty sure that's true. Um, although I, I even, yeah, um, I'll save that for the solo shows. Um, or the universe began to exist. That's a little bit more controversial, but it's still a grand uh, fact that most of the world's scientists actually believe are true, including people like Lawrence Krauss and that sort of thing. So extended cosmological arguments offer the same form, but I see them as different, well, what's the feature that they're doing? And those with extended cosmological arguments, as as I, this is my term, so I made, I made it up, that could be something like the argument from consciousness. So there the feature might be more controversial. Um, you know, we're, we're arguing, well, what caused, what's the first cause of consciousness or something? Um, the moral argument is an extended cosmological argument. We have moral values and duties exist, um, what's the first cause or what explains those those things um so so that's how i you know categorize those types of things uh teleological arguments are arguments from design there's there's an intelligent designer um, and there, again there are there are various versions of this or levels you could say right uh, so one teleological argument that's famous for many atheists um, that they really love is william Paley's, right Species are intelligently designed by God. The polar bear is intelligently designed by by God. He's got these aspects or or f- design features that um, indicate that he was intelligently designed. Um, obviously, we know how that turned out uh, with modern evolutionary theory. That that's been falsified as an argument. But um, I'm just showing like you can have it different levels. So some people will make a teleological argument. Uh, about the design of the solar system or something. Um, but really, the, the most popular ones today are, at the at, again, at the grand level of the, of the universe, so the, the fine-tuning of the universe um, based on the, the constants, the initial conditions of the Big Bang and that sort of thing. Um, but there's also another grand one that I, I like as a teleological argument, and that's what John Lennox calls the rational intelligibility of the universe, um so that's that's another grand teleological one
1: um
0: finally the the ontological argument is okay well that takes god from the very concept of god we can prove that he actually exists uh based on the concept um so yeah in sort of a broad brush those are the the main categories of arguments based on their logical form, like how they try to argue God exists. Um, uh, Yeah, I I can go into more specifics after, but yeah, first I'll turn it to you. David, did you want to give an intro or?
1: Yes. Sure. Uh, So I I will just take your uh, points and uh, feedback on them. So uh, we'll start with the last one, the ontological uh, arguments. I I think, yeah, so I think – that falls into the category of what skeptics would uh, say: definitional arguments, um, and the, and they are the least convincing of all. I think to both the skeptic and the Christian. So, there may be some Christians who who like it for its you know intellectual challenge, and to be sure, there is a lot of deep philosophy and intellectual challenge involved in the ontological argument We're, you know, we're not even going to scratch the surface uh, of how bad it can make your head hurt if you, if you really dive in. But the fact is, it's not convincing. So it may, be, it may be fun to argue for some, but I, I think that if you're looking for the argument, that's going to convert the fewest number of people, that's going to be it. It's just, it just doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. And, you know, I am I'm, I'm not impressed with definitional arguments. We'll get into uh why in a little bit. Teleological arguments, uh I think I like arguing against those the most simply because I think they're easy. <laughs> so, um I just I don't I don't find them challenging at all. I find that's that's where you find a lot of the god of the gaps uh arguments, I think. Um, you know, we've got this, we've got this thing that looks designed. I can't imagine how it could come about if it wasn't designed. And if you, if you can categorize an argument with, I can't imagine blank, it's a God of the gaps argument and it's pretty easy to dismiss. So, um, I think that that's where most of your, uh, teleological argument lives, and uh, uh, finally, the, uh, first, the first one that we mentioned, the um, cosmological uh, arguments. Uh, so I mentioned, I, I had some commentary on the cosmological argument. At least we agree that there's a cosmos. Uh, but the things that uh, Dale categorizes, uh, extended uh, cosmological argument, uh, mm-hmm. those don't go very far, uh, typically, because uh, there is no universal agreement on those things. Um, so I think that the one that people might enjoy arguing more would be the, the moral argument. Uh, because even a lot of skeptics would say that there are some moral oughts. I would not. I actually don't believe that there are any moral oughts. In, not in the way that the Christian means. And so I think that the Christian overreaches there. So I, I think that all of the extended... Uh, cosmological arguments uh, are a little bit hard to get started because first the Christian and skeptic must agree that they are arguing about a thing that they both agree exists and that often doesn't happen. Consciousness is a pretty good example. Oftentimes they can never come up with a definition of consciousness and when they do they it seems they're talking about very different things. Uh, and then you get into dualism and stuff like that. The argument never really goes anywhere. It's very hard to 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 get started with with someone with different worldviews, so uh, that's that's kind of my uh, overview uh, of that. I the traditional cosmological arguments: the universe is here. Let's let's bat back and forth about how that happened. Uh, that can be fun. And arguments from design, I think, are silly, but ultimately fun, simply because. You know, it's easy to tie Christians in knots with it and uh, just see how different Christians respond to it. Um, so with that, um, do you want to dive into a little bit of discussion with uh, uh, on the topic that we were going to spend some time on today, the uh, sure. uh, ontological argument? So let me let you go first so that you can set down the parameters of what we're talking about with regard to the ontological argument. Now there's the the original ontological argument and then there's some some expansions and um, uh, alterations to that. There's maybe some more modern views, uh, the Plantinga version of the ontological argument. So maybe you can walk us through what it is basically and then give us a little bit about how it's uh, changed and morphed into what it is today.
0: Gotcha. Okay, um, yeah, and if you could, because I was trying to write down, uh, I had to run and grab a piece of paper, but the with the Cosmo, so teleological arguments, the main objection is the god of the gaps type problem. Uh, yeah, it's,
1: it's the, this looks designed, and I can't imagine how it would be here if it wasn't designed. That's, that's kind of what I call a god of the gaps argument.
0: Okay, and your ontological one is we're just defining God into existence. Yes. That's your main yes. It's... And what was your main objection for the cosmolog- The traditional cosmological.
1: Well, it's uh, so I didn't give one, but it's largely um, God of the gaps too, because actually, so with the traditional one, we're agreeing that the cosmos exists, and I think that the right answer to how did the cosmos get here is I don't know. And I think that when you poll scientists, I mean, I think I think you maybe miscategorize Krauss. Um, I, I think the real answer uh, of all credible scientists is I don't know. Here's a theory, um, but it, but it all starts with I don't know. And for the Christian, I don't know is not a starting point that they can live with. So um, I, I I think that the Christian kind of overreaches in trying to answer what is currently unanswerable and then they will go into the area well you know there are other ways to answer big questions besides science but they start off with a scientific observation the universe is here and then they want to leave science to come up with an answer so are we talking science or not uh the the christian kind of wants it both ways with that so that they don't have to say that they don't know
0: okay perfect okay um so yeah let's let's take each one of these uh things in turn for the objective one. So starting with the ontological argument, uh, okay, so what what is that? Um, so essentially it started with St. Anselm. He's the one credited with having invented uh, the original version of this argument back in the year 1078 um, in his book. And uh, as David said, there have been multiple versions. Um, you know, Kurt, the famous mathematician Kurt Gödel has, has made his own version of the ontological argument. Alvin um, Plantinga, who who provides the the one that I'm uh, most the one that I like the best. Um, and typically, modern versions of the argument utilize uh, modal logic. Um, but before I get into that, so so essentially, Anselm's version. Says, look, we we have a concept of God in our minds uh, as being the greatest conceivable being. Whatever it is, whatever properties that make you great, he's got them to the maximum possible degree. And this concept exists, obviously exists in my mind. I can think of it, can't you? Um, but then from that, um, Anselm will say, but then it's greater. It's greater to exist in reality than it is to exist simply in the mind. So therefore, if the greatest conceivable being is in fact conceivable, he would also have to actually exist in reality. Um, and yeah, they, they provide arguments for that uh, in premise format. Um, so the one, I'm going to give Elvin Planting is one, which utilizes modal logic. So modal logic talks about possible worlds. So, The first premise here is it's possible that a maximally great being exists. Maximally great being is the same as the greatest conceivable being in Anselm's talk, right? So he's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's omnibenevolent, uh, and that sort of thing. Then the other premises are uncontroversial, believe it or not. No, No, very few atheists... Uh, who understand modal logic, object to the next premises. So basically, if... Except
1: imagine- me. So I, I can so, almost assure that I will controvert <laughs> these things. Go ahead.
0: Okay. Uh, but you you didn't uh, in your blog. So okay. if you're going to bring something else up. Yeah, let's, let's see if
1: you come up with something that um, that I'm not thinking about. <laughs> Gus, I, you know, I've heard you say, uh, you know, these things are uncontroversial and then we can... Argue for thirty minutes about why they're controversial, but go ahead. Let's see if you actually have an uncontroversial. They're uncontroversial fact. for scholar, people that know what the argument is and what they're talking about. I
0: guess, like scholars. Okay, let's see. I mean that. Mm-hmm. So okay, so if a maximally, if it's possible that a maximally great being exists, um, so you know, therefore that's that's what Anselm says he exists in your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, then the maximally great being exists in a logically possible world. If a maximally uh, great being exists, premise three, uh, in some possible world, then it exists in every possible world. Uh, so that that premise is going from the again, remember, the a maximally great being would be a necessary being, which means you exist in every single possible world. It's greater to be necessary than contingent. So I know David's going to challenge that. Mm-hmm. Premise four. If a maximally great being exists in every possible world, then it exists in the actual world, because the actual world is a possible world that's been actualized. Um premise five, a maximally great being exists in the actual world, therefore a maximally great being exists. Um so yeah, that that in a nutshell is Elvin planting his version of the ontological argument. It's the argument that I I like the best um out of the various versions because it's very simple. You know, uh, five
1: premises and uh, conclusion. Um, yeah, I, 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 oh. Um, so can I can I say something about um, those premises before you go on? Uh, I'm not challenging them. There's just a bit of sure. uh, his historical interest. So when the when this argument was first trotted out, it had something like. Uh, maybe it was five, but I, I thought it was six premises um, and a conclusion. In um, the way you stated it, that's actually the longer version. If a uh, maximally great being exists uh, then. And I think that Plantinga, if not, I might be mixing him up with William Lane Craig, skipped that first one. And just went straight. Their first premise was uh, a maximally uh, great being um, can exist, rather than if this being can exist. They they go straight to it can exist. Uh, thus thus trying to work their way out of that argument um, by by dumping that first premise and uh, it doesn't work but i just i just want to say that th- there has been some work on these premises mm-hmm. because there has sure. been room to argue with the traditional first premise and so a lot of modern scholars uh you know bypass that argument by getting rid of it
0: gotcha uh, yeah that that's a fair point yeah pe- people tweak these arguments to to fit it into their own their own scheme or to improve or to avoid um issues that come up right and and that's perfectly plausible that's that's the same with every every argument um or on both sides if you're an atheist the argument from evil uh some atheists would like to tweak that and say well i'll call it the argument from pain and suffering instead those are actually two different arguments (laughs) so it's not not the same argument (laughs) no well no that's not true it's it depends on the, the point I'm saying is that it depends on the person. And actually, they are the same argument. They, they utilize the same thing where people will tweak. Instead of saying evil, they'll say um, the argument from pain and suffering. Yeah, what, I'm, what I'm just telling you avoid. is that there
1: are two different arguments. There's an argument from evil. And there's an argument from suffering. I, I have different chapters on them in the book. So let me recommend Still Unbelievable uh, and just read um, read all of it, especially the ones I that I wrote toward the middle. Uh, there are there are in fact, uh, traditionally different arguments. Some of some people conflate those two arguments to be the same thing. Right. and I think that one of the reasons um, I, I think that a lot of times it's the Christians that are conflating those arguments so that they don't have to face right. them both.
0: Okay, so yes and no right like like i said it depends on the person you chose to separate them as totally separate that's that's valid you're allowed to do that right because they are technically different things and require different ways to warrant the premises if you're saying that evil exists that that's not necessarily the same as pain and suffering so not at all the same thing yeah so if you want to say that you could say all of the ontological arguments are entirely different arguments. Uh, yeah, that's fine.
1: Um, well, but in this well, case, they're not entirely different arguments. They are uh, they are tweaked versions of an argument because the original argument uh, ran into issues. <laughs> and so it, it's something that has needed to be fixed over time. <laughs> so I I would say if, if Anselm were alive today and he tried to argue his argument, he would just lose. There, there's a reason why it's needed to be fixed.
0: Um, well, I don't think so. I think he would win, and and scholars have done that. So I, I think he's actually arguing along the same li- exact same lines as modern people with modal logic. It's just he didn't have modal logic terminology. So it is just a tweak, if you want to say. Or people do have radically different arguments that aren't based in this an psalmian thing like robert e may doyle has entirely different you wouldn't recognize it if i showed you his arguments um i, I don't include them because they're very complicated they've got like 16 premises and uh, all that i did not so, encounter him so <laughs> yeah uh, so so yeah I, uh-huh. but but put it this way to try and get you to see how how they can modernize modernize it um so like when when Anselm he says god has the property of existing in the mind Essentially, uh, he he didn't know the terminology, but that's kind of the same as our first premise. By saying it's logically possible, it's conceivable through our minds and our modal evaluating faculties to know that a, a greatest conceivable being or a quote unquote maximally great being exists. Um, so they, they you can it's just different terminologies, but it's right. sort of same, the same thing. This is this, that's, by the it, way,
1: is the is the premise that um, I think. The skeptics should spend most of their time on because it it doesn't yes. need to get out of the gate at all. Uh, you can you can and and I will given uh, given uh, opportunity uh, when <laughs> argue that that premise sh- is is not in fact correct. So it is a it is a question begging premise. It is I, I think improperly formed. It is a claim uh, rather than premise, and so. Um, but, gotcha. you know, yeah so
0: so so yeah my okay so the one last overview overview point then before we can have a little bit of discussion on what you object to but for the skeptic just so you know how, how can you come what are the possible ways that you can come back against an ontological argument in, in general as an overview what what are so the first is most of the time ontological arguments are deductive arguments I, i've never come across one that's an inductive thing or something like that so um, when you're attacking a deductive argument you can either number one you can attack the logical validity you can say that the conclusion doesn't follow from the premise from the premises um, or that it commits some kind of logical fallacy so typically with all ontological arguments this logical validity thing is not an issue they they are logically valid the conclusion follows inevitably and escapably necessarily from the premises um, in, in all the cases, um, and then you'd have to ask, does it commit a logical fallacy? So so David hinted, he thinks it begs the question, but I, I won't, we'll discuss that after I'm done. Um, okay, then the second way you can attack an onslaught logical argument is by saying, well, are the premises sound? Uh, and David has some objections on, on that front, right? So, <laughs> In, in one case, he just told us he objects to premise number one. He, he doesn't think we can prove it's possible that a maximally great being exists or in Anselm's terminology um, that that the greatest conceivable being exists in the mind or something. Right. I don't, I don't think that you it. can hold
1: that idea in the mind. Gotcha.
0: OK. Um, and then the. Another, the other way to go after these traditionally, um, these are the ways most atheists and even Christians throughout history have attacked um, ontological arguments is arguing via parodies. So they'll say, oh, well, okay, let's pretend this argument works and you, yeah, you proved God, but obviously there's some kind of hidden flaw in the argument that we just aren't seeing because I can use that to prove that there's a greatest conceivable island or a maximally great pizza. Um, You know, some other people try to say, well, there's a necessarily existent dragon. Um, And then there's the, you know, the one that I think is the most challenging in terms of refuting premise one. Um, It's still overcome, in my opinion, but it's, okay, well, supplant everything, but instead of a maximally great being, let's say it's a maximal evil being. This is what Stephen Law calls the evil God challenge um, and and they cancel each other out. Um, but yeah that so that's arguing via parity. So it's saying even if this argument works and yeah it can get you God, it can get you a whole host of other things that we know are ridiculous. so there must be some kind of flaw that we just aren't seeing in it
1: um, yeah right and, and because we can we can imagine a flying spaghetti monster. Yeah. It it doesn't mean that it exists in any world, Um, let alone all worlds. But we can all imagine it. Gotcha. Okay.
0: Um. Now, because we're not doing it with Tony, the the fourth category. Did you want us to get in? Like that's sort of saying that it doesn't match up with the Bible, or. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. In that okay so. So you know me a, i'm
1: any any time i can steer apologetics to theology I'm, I'm i'm a happy camper okay
0: um so so yeah this is where david uh tony would have been better for this than than me but nonetheless nope. I, I can answer it so oh no <laughs> nope okay. i don't think so <laughs> um sure so, so david david says great pretend the ontological argument works um my objection is how does that mesh with the bible or the biblical concept of god or christianity um the two could be contradictory or it it could be problematic because we're substituting perfect being theology and deriving knowledge about god that goes way beyond what the bible says about him and you know david might say that's a problem for some reason that i'm sure he'll get into um so those are the the Four ways. Um, the first three are traditional ways that people will attack the ontological argument properly, uh, proper in its own right. And then the fourth way is, is okay. It's kind of like digging at Christian theism. Even if, even if it's successful, how does the ontological argument relate to Christianity, the Christian God? Um, so yeah, I'll, I guess I can turn it to to David to
1: yeah. So uh, since I didn't and, take notes because I don't take notes, uh, didn't take notes in school either. Kids, <laughs> try to do better. You <laughs> do actually
0: have the email that I sent to, to
1: you. I okay. do, and then I have to pull it up and look at it, and I'd, that's not going to happen. So you might um, you might remind me of some of the points, but um, yeah, let me let me take uh, the first one. Um, the premises themselves are open to attack, so. Okay. Uh, a, a person can give these premises in a very confident tone, and uh, you might be, be cowed by him. But don't. Um, no, you may not can win because you may not be as smart as the person who, who you are arguing with. And it's one of my objections to truth by philosophical premises because the the real winner is whoever's the smartest one in the room at the time. Um, it's so you know I can be beaten here because i'm not i'm not brilliant at philosophy uh which know, which everybody you're... knows by now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but that doesn't I... doesn't mean that just because dale stumps me that he's got the right of it i, I just i, don't, I just don't, I don't have enough knowledge to to beat it at the time okay but
0: bear in my eyes. so i i really don't want to do that i i want to help you um understand even if that's going to mean okay you're you're going to reject it or not but like yeah when it comes to this argument i'll I'll treat you like a partner like i'll try to explain
1: um right well i'm not saying that you're going to beat me today i'm just saying that anyone that this is my problem in general with truth by philosophy Mm -hmm. um is that the winner is the smartest guy in the room at the time um and so it's it's not as good an evidence as say, you know, a beaker in a lab, you know, full of full of material that can be tested. Yeah, um, gotcha. Right. Okay. So it's it's a, it's a different character. So even as we discuss this, it doesn't matter if I win either. By the way, so those those exactly. on the other side listening, I might pummel Dale here today, but it doesn't mean that I'm right either. It just means that I was the smartest guy in the room today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, um, we're
0: we're on a t- i i want people to understand it. i want you to understand it even if afterwards you say you still don't buy it the, many many smart people with the ontological argument don't like it or don't buy it uh thomas aquinas didn't wasn't a, a fan of it um uh, many my my own professor um right now kind of dismissed it for the same reason you did that oh it's just defining god into existence and that was your main objection so what can i let's just start with that first first off yes um okay so that objection isn't true because this is a logically deductive argument so i I think we could actually agree on this so there are multiple premises. it's not just saying it's you know it's possible god exists therefore god exists right it's not just defining him into existence
1: well but but i think i disagree with that it is it is definitional because you're not just saying i can imagine god exists you're imagining a particular kind of god with particular qualities and so the the whole exercise starts with you coming up with some definitions
0: sure yeah it's definitional but it's not And,
1: and where do you get those definitions from
0: from your modal evaluating faculties, or your imagination, to use in um, psalms. Right, what but
1: what you're not, it? what you're, what you don't, what you're not doing is looking at a, um, a an owner's manual of God telling you what it's made of. You're you're just trying to figure out what it's made of from your own imagination. So this is this is what I mean by defining him into existence. You are the arbiter of the definition of God. Th- there is no, there's no objective standard for what God is. So there may be a, a wide agreement among some believers, but that is different from an objective standard.
0: Yeah. So. I guess you're saying people are imagining different things. Um, so, yes. And this is, this is why you use a maximally great being. So I, I might not have everything spelled out.
1: But I can't let you go further than that because this is part of, this is part of the argument. God, you're, you're saying a maximally great being. Fine. But God doesn't have to be a maximally great being to be God. The God of the Bible, as as defined by the Bible, I know I'm jumping to another one of the um, objections here, but the God of the Bible is not necessarily a maximally great being. He's just a great. He's just the greatest being available. You might even say uh, the greatest being in time. There's not going to be a time where there's a being greater. But that doesn't mean that he has maximal greatness. In that there can't be any improvement. Um, so you're, you're actually making a different argument, than a stronger argument than what you need to. Uh, you can say the God of the Bible is the most powerful God, for instance, without saying he's all uh, possible power. Those are different claims. And so when you jump to maximally great being, I'm wondering why you are feeling like you've got to jump to that and how you can prove that God is, quote unquote, the maximally great being it's it's simply not necessary to any definition of god that i can that i know of theologically
0: right so yeah so so that is a different objection right that's the fourth one saying that so it may be true I, i don't think it is actually when you actually read the bible and understand it um and again this is where tony would have been better than me because he's got stronger biblical knowledge on the teachings of god's attributes but from what i've studied in the coherence of theism sessions um it does give us certain great making properties to a to a maximal degree it doesn't use that terminology but it, it's kind of like you know with anselm we can update his terminology tweak it and and we can understand it so the word in in somewhere in the book of revelation it calls god almighty that's a 16th century word that's not what the actual greek word means the greek word is I don't know what the the Greek word that's translated almighty actually means omnipotent. He is all powerful is what the Greek words actually use there. So there it does give us perfectly consistent with a maximal great being. Um, There are also implications where it talks about God being, you can derive it's saying God is omniscient. Uh, It's not just saying he's very knowledgeable. Uh, it's actually saying he has all knowledge that yes. is possible. So
1: I, I would question that theologically and also literarily. Um, mm-hmm. So we can, we can say that Donald Trump is all powerful and be telling the truth because the president of the United States, the United States is, uh, you know, as the United States goes, so go the world. We can, we can say that um, with, um, you know, with, with some degree of accuracy, but that doesn't mean that he can do anything. Um, so we would be using that maybe kind of poetically, maybe hyperbolically. Uh, and I think that that language is often used in describing God and gods throughout literature, and kings for that matter. Uh, you can use the same descriptions of God as you would use for kings. Uh, you could say, for instance, that uh, the emperor of Rome is omnipresent. He's, he's everywhere because Rome is everywhere. Um, and, you know, th- th- things, things like that. So I don't, I don't know that that necessarily means that the writer at the time is making a statement of God's maximal literal qualities. Th- yeah, this well, is simply how you talked about powerful rulers.
0: Uh, well, it's not, because they, they didn't. That's why you got to look at the context. Jews would never say that about, they only said that about God. And this is, uh, the biblical scholar Richard Bauckham talks about God's divine identity, uh, what ancient Jews thought separated God from all other types of things, um, or, or cre- creations, creatures, uh, whether you're an angel or, or whatever. And, and these are distinguishing marks. Um, you know God's absolute so, power. So I'm show. not.
1: I'm not saying that it can't be used the way you're using it. I'm just saying that there are other ways to read it besides that. And I know you're trying to eliminate any other way to read it. And I we're just going to disagree with that. I, I think that both readings are possible. And um, you think they're
0: equally possible, or yes.
1: are they? I, okay. I I do believe that just from the literature they're equally possible but once again you would you would have to make a theological argument about which one you think it is uh not not merely a literary argument because i don't i don't think that you can tell from merely looking at the literature
0: yeah you well that's that's why i'm saying i'm I'm arguing based on the context i mean we know the socio-cultural context of how jews differentiated god and, and what those Verses are talking about when they're using that to Contrast it with angels or demons or cre- Creation itself, all of creation um, So yeah, okay, if, if you just disagree, I, I don't think yeah. that they're possible I, I think, I, I, think impossible.
1: I think there's a lot of hyperbolic language when it comes to gods and powerful rulers I mean because when people you know you look at examine some of David's prayers Uh, you know, these, these long poetic, um, odes to God, they are so over the top in, in their language, and it's, it's almost, um, you know, it's sycophantic, um, frankly, and you, I, I understand you wouldn't read it that way, uh, but it, but it looks very sycophantic of you know someone who is speaking to someone so great and powerful that they could they could just crush them they could they could love them one moment and crush them with a thought with another moment and this is how you need to talk to this guy to make sure that you don't get crushed <laughs> and so um, yeah I, I, I read a, I read a lot of that um, in the in the language. Uh, used to describe god and so yes with it there's a lot of overreach oh he's he's the greatest of all but i i don't think that they are necessarily making ontological claims when they talk that way
0: yeah see i guess it's just it's the way you're reading scripture it's problematic because it's it's it, it, sure, it's possible in the first place, but it, it's it's very improbable to me. It, it, it's like you're taking a clear verse. Forget, it, forget about even the Almighty or Omnipotence, but let's just... There's verses that says God can move mountains. You'd be like, yeah, it says that. There are but verses that say God, we can move mountains. Right. You know, God, God can only move little hills in real life. Right, right, but the, there are the verses that say
1: we can move mountains, though. I mean, you. this is... Huh? You, there are verses that say we can move mountains
0: here <laughs> you're, you're, through God's power or whatever. Yeah. yeah but your understand.
1: example defeats you because we can't move mountains and, and, uh, no one actually thinks that they can. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a crazy overreach to describe the power of God. Uh, you know, if you have faith in this God, you can tell the mountain to get up and move and it'll throw itself in the ocean. Bullshit. No, it won't. We, we all know that that's not going to happen. But that's that's a that's a hyperbolic way of talking about the power of God.
0: Okay, so wait wait a second, David. So because this is going to be relevant for our show in prayer. So are yes, you admitting now that that verse that says people can have faith and if they have strong enough faith they can move mountains is hyperbolic? It's not literal.
1: Eh, don't try to hold okay. me to that. That's uh, <laughs> that's my point for the moment. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure what my point will be. be Consistent, (laughs) though, right? So, okay. um, No, I'm not going for consistent. I'm going for the throat. You go for consistency. That's fine. Okay. Well, look. Here's the thing. Uh, The fact is kind of a field argument is (laughs) logical inconsistency. Here's the thing. I don't know. Uh, That's probably the true answer today. And. you know, a couple of weeks when we get to prayer. The fact of the matter is I don't know at any given moment what the writer had in mind. I can, I can give you the possibilities. I can tell you what they think, what I, what I think they thought at that time, what they were trying to convey. Um, But giving, giving this as a possible way that they thought Uh, just seems to be a a responsible way of talking about it because you're talking about it as if the only way they could have been thinking was to describe literal ontological qualities. And I'm saying, no, from, from literature, that is not in fact the only way uh, you can think of it, even for those people at that time. Uh, I don't, I am not saying for sure that that is what they were saying. I'm not saying that you are wrong and that I'm right, but that it is possible. Gotcha. Okay. So, so, I, I don't even, in the
0: first place, just to clarify, I'm not saying that it's not possible that your reading could be true. I, I just think it's very improbable based on the, it depends on the certain verses, right? Like there are, obvi- there's verses that call Jesus a door. So you you need to be receptive to that. But what the verse that I'm having in mind, like in Isaiah or something like that, those are, I think it's more probably describing God's actual power. It's not just using a metaphor or hyperbolic. And I
1: agree that that's possible. I don't, I don't think it is though. Um, Just, just based on all the, the, the looking at all of the scripture and I've, I've probably read more of it than you at this point. And and maybe when you, when you read more, you'll come to my conclusion or maybe you'll stick with yours. But I, I think that um, the balance of, how scripture reads and how those writers wrote about things that it is more likely hyperbole, hyperbole than than that they are trying to provide some literal ontology of god how would they even know what the literal ontology of god was they wouldn't know okay so okay so let me say this to to
0: get back to the ontological argument let's let's pretend so for you you said they're, they're equally possible. It, it could be hyperbolic or it could be literal.
1: Yes, because if, if look, if, if I became convinced that it was literal, I would just say, yeah, these are people who had a, an overreach as they were defining their God. This is the God that they defined, and these are the qualities that they like to think that their God had. But I would still come back to the same question. How would they know uh, any characteristic of God? They wouldn't. They, they don't have access to God. They have no idea.
0: They have while well,
1: they have a sense divinitatis,
0: they have the Holy Spirit they have God himself revealing to him okay directly. so you just kind of have but,
1: to assume that they are taking some kind of dictation from God that this is what he is um I, I would contend that even if they were speaking literally they're speak they're talking out of their ass they have no idea
0: okay uh great this isn't a show on proving divine inspiration but right I'm for the, sh- for the sake of the ontological argument, I'm happy to concede, okay, let's pretend they're equally possible. For the sake of the ontological argument, then that's good enough, because you, you can't prove that there's a contradiction between a maximally great being, or the greatest conceivable being that the ontological argument argues for, and the biblical concept of God.
1: Well, I haven't um, started on the contradictions yet. I was I was just laying the the groundwork okay. but, but <laughs> I think so I, far, I think I can prove it but you're right I haven't yet
0: right so okay so so far they they're consistent the, this objection at least as you've laid out so far is doesn't do anything to dismiss the ontological argument until you present later on present those contradictory things
1: uh sure I'm just okay. I'm just putting a, a you know showing where some of the cracks in your armor uh, is and then I I'll try to smash through it with something bigger later
0: Gotcha. Okay. Um, so, and I, I wanted to, this is a main point that I really want to get for the skeptic. So going back to your point, your, your main objection that this argument is just defining God into existence. And I'm saying it's not. So you're correct that it is a definitional or it, it's based on the conceptual definition of God. True. But it, it's not just defining, it's not just saying, God exists. Haha, ha, gotcha. Uh, see, we've defined him into existing. There's a series of premises that lead to a logical deductive conclusion, um, and uh, you can reject the premises as you do in the soundness. But it, it's not just—it's not fair to say it's just defining it. it. It's providing premises, which, if true, necessarily prove that that being exists.
1: Well, it. it uh, let me. Let me just say I, I don't. If <laughs> If you accept the premises, which is a big if, I don't, yeah. um, sure. and, and frankly, no one should, but if you accept the premises, then yeah, it, I, you should accept the conclusion. But the fact is, that doesn't mean that what you've defined into existence is even the God of the Bible. You've defined some God into existence or something that we can call a God. If you, I mean, once again, just slapping the name God on this thing that you defined into existence is itself a choice that you make, it is not a necessity. So you are, you are even then defining God by, by calling this thing God. I would contend, though, that the thing that you've defined into existence isn't even the God of the Bible, or it certainly isn't necessarily the God of the Bible. So you still got to make a connection between that thing and the God of the Bible, which, which this argument does not do.
0: Okay. Uh, Yes, that this argument doesn't prove that the biblical God is true. It's consistent with it. Although, so I guess that's that's really what your main objection is. It's not so much that this argument is defining the maximal great being or quote-unquote God or Yahweh, whatever you want to call it, into existence, whatever label you put on it. But Yahweh, as described in the Bible, is is contradictory. So like you, you... if I understand your main beef isn't really with the ontological argument, it's, it's the significance for Christianity. And you think that there are ways to contradict. Um, is that, is that, yeah, I would percentage? say, I wouldn't
1: say my main beef, but I would say it definitely a beef. Um, and so if you want to, know where's the beef, that's, that's one of the places where it is. Um, okay. so at the end of my blog post, Post, uh, I think I will probably be the only one to have presented a blog this week since at this yeah. point that we're recording, I'm the only one who's written one. Uh, Dale might swing around and, and do that. He's welcome to do that. But uh, toward the end of uh, my write-up, what I said, and of course you guys know this because you've already read it, right? Anyway, um, Actually, I find people do read the the things, they like do, and I and I thank you uh, guys for it. <laughs> so I'm just I'm just. I'm just poking you a bit. Um, but the, the, what I say is I can grant uh, the, the apologist all of the ontological argument, and we still have a long debate ahead of us before we get to the God of the Bible. So at the end of the day, I, I still find it just a mental exercise uh, that's somewhat meaningless, uh, as is really my main objection with all apologetics. It only uh, builds half a bridge, and there's no way to get that other half.
0: Okay, okay. Um, okay, so I'm just... All right, well, what?
1: But, I, but I'm not I I'm not that... ready to punt to that point, because that's honestly a, a defeater. That's kind of an ultimate defeater, and I don't want to defeat the conversation in that way. Um,
0: yeah, no, I'm just kind so... of... To... Okay, well well, why don't we do this? So, so you presented two argument, two main arguments against it that we've discussed.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about the first so premise let's... actually, uh, because we haven't, I've just talked around it. So, uh, I do not in fact believe, uh, that you can conceive of a, uh, perfect being. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to start there. Um, and then I'm going to move to another premise uh, real quick. I know there's not a full debate on this subject, so I'm gonna have to, we're going to have to leave some of this stuff on the cutting room floor so yeah. that we can talk yeah. about some other stuff. But uh, it's important to talk about, at least to get this out there. Um, so what is a perfect being? Well, so I would conceive that you would have to be a perfect being to know a perfect being. We are not perfect beings. So whatever we conceive of... I think almost of necessity is imperfect, um, because our 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 faculties are limited to what to our nature. Uh, so, uh, I don't I don't think that we can even get started with this idea of conceiving of a perfect being. We can conceive of what we think of as a perfect being, but what we think of as a perfect being. It might in fact be far from a perfect being, so we have no way to to measure that and, and test whether our perfect being idea is in fact perfect. Um, and yeah, in in holding that idea of perfection or a mind, um, or yeah, or conceiving of it, once again, we would have to know uh, quite a bit more about perfection before we could get there. Now, um, the, other, the other thing, and I think it's premise two or three, um, but maybe whatever the next premise is, um, I would say just briefly, even if we could conceive of perfection, say a perfect circle, it doesn't mean that that's possible in, in any universe. Because we know uh, that a number of our conceptions of per- perfection, such as geometric shapes, are not Possible, uh, we suspect in any universe, and so there's no reason to believe it simply because we could conceive of perfection, which I don't think we can, that it would therefore be possible in some possible universe, which we know is just not the case with some things. Okay. Okay.
0: So, yeah. Just to respond to. Oh, sorry.
1: Is that and that's yes. everything? Yeah. That's that's everything that I'm that I'm going to cover. So there's there's more. And by the way, I want to say these are these are my thoughts, but echoed by a a lot of other people uh, who are smarter than me too. So uh, you can, if if you want to look them up, uh, Dale provides lots of sources. I'm not providing any sources, but <laughs> there are plenty of sources yeah. out there. Well, I,
0: I just provided sources on the ontological argument because I thought Tony was coming on, but I, yeah, I'll I'll provide some quick uh, videos on the other stuff as well. But... Yeah, yeah. But anyway, okay.
1: those those are those are kind of the first two premises. I think that in a uh, you know if you've got time to really unpack that, you can uh, the skeptic wins without going any further than that. Gotcha.
0: Okay. So so just to give a recap. For everyone
1: because I want it to be clear
0: in context as to what's happening so so far we've had this is the third objection so the first one that we just me and David discussed um, was really the fourth category that even if the ontological argument is successful it it's it's inconsistent it's not uh, representative of the biblical God and on that I def- temporarily defeated that claim where David and I both agreed well, it's it's equally possible it is consistent, but David said he thinks there are some things that are contradictory. And I will swing
1: point. back around to them in and, and spend cool. like two minutes on them. So don't yeah. worry, we're cool. not gonna we're not gonna breeze past cool. that.
0: Cool. Okay. And then the second objection was on the logical validity. David thinks that with his this is just being defined into existence, he, he thinks that this is uh A logically invalid or a non sequitur argument and then we both agreed actually that's not the case because it logic this is a logically valid argument if the premises are true so i think i think we agreed on that much so that's that's good i I don't
1: i don't i'm not sure that we actually agreed on that much if we did i i may have misunderstood what we were agreeing to i should really read things before i sign them
0: fair enough um well that's Okay, well, I don't want to
1: go back again, but yeah.
0: okay, put it put it this way: most most atheists, and I, I haven't heard any reason from David to think that the argument is a non sequitur that, that it isn't logically valid. And most atheists don't deny that it is logically valid. Christians are smart enough to create valid arguments. That that's pretty easy to do. Right. But,
1: so the the logic, the problem, the logical validity uh, issue would be that if you could conceive of a perfect being which i think you can't that the premise 3 that that it must exist in some possible world this is the modal logic and i just said that is simply not the case it, right so
0: so so this so that these two arguments that were the, david's third two, argument in two parts is attacking the logical soundness he's saying he doesn't think certain premises are actually true so that, that's the category of objection we're in here, just okay. for the audience to keep track. Um, okay. okay, so yeah, my response. So in the first place, David is absolutely correct that our faculties are not perfect, they're flawed. And that includes our, our modal evaluating faculties in some cases, they're, they're not flawless. Um, so for example, skeptics, uh, in, a, in one of my examples when I when I get to the cosmological argument in my solo show is the modal imagination argument against uh, a principle of sufficient reason. And they'll say, heck, I can imagine a brick just popping up out of nothing inexplicably. Um, And my answer to that is, no, you can't. You're either a liar or you're deluded. Um, And basically, it takes the four. That's what David is saying to me here. No, you can't. You think you can, but you can't. Really, what you're conceiving of is something else. I, I can conceive of a brick popping into existence. But it's not uncaused. Maybe it's an invisible supernatural thing causing it to come into existence. I'm just imagining it without a brick maker or without clay being hardened in the sun or something like that. And that, that essentially is what David is saying here. Um, you think you're imagining it, but you're, you're conceiving of something different and then equating that to a maximally great being exists. Maybe you've just got in mind a quasi great being or something like that. Um, so, so in the first place, my, my answer to that is, even though we have flawed, um, our faculties are flawed due to sin, they're not totally flawed in all cases. So, for example, I have 100% knowledge that one plus one equals two. Even though my rational faculties are contaminated by sin, there are at least some instances where it is perfect in those, in, in those specific areas. You, you would agree with That
1: right? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Okay. I mean, so so first of all, I don't think that my knowledge is contaminated by sin at all. I think it's just limited by the fact that I'm a certain kind of meat sack, uh, with with you know Mm -hmm. certain kinds and amounts of neurons and neuronal connections and so forth. And there's there is a limit to what I can do but my limits are not even limited is the same limits as other humans there are other humans who can go further than me but at the end of the day we all are human whatever whatever defines that and i think to to envision this thing that you are calling a perfect god we would have to be more than human to do that right okay so so here's um yeah so
0: it, so the point is, even despite our limitations, we can have, we can have limited knowledge uh, of, of something infallibly, like one plus one equals two, or I'm seeing a, I'm holding a pen right. in my hand right now. I'm, right. I'm but not but
1: a perfect being right is not the same caliber as one plus one.
0: Right, so I'm going to get there afterwards. I'm okay, just, right. so I've established that point that they can, they do sometimes function properly and give us knowledge. So the second, thing, in regards to the maximally great being, this comes down to the difference between conceivability and imaginability. Again, right? So I may not be able to imagine everything about a maximal great being, but that doesn't mean I can't conceive of a maximal great being. I, there are lots of things I can conceive of various mathematical models and and being true about the universe i don't i i don't understand them i can't imagine that quantum physics i no human being can imagine uh how quantum phenomena works um using analogies of, of our macro world or anything and, and this is why i think richard Feynman says you know you, you know about as we know about as much about quantum physics as an ant knows about uh calculus or something right but still we can conceive through mathematics of these various quantum phenomena and that sort of thing even though our imagination can't picture it so i I might not be able to picture everything about a maximum great being i can picture imagine some things about it um but that doesn't take away from the fact that it's still conceivable like i it's perfectly conceivable to say Whatever is a great-making property, and this was another one of your objections you didn't mention, but it, right. it's an objection.
1: Um, I didn't think yeah. that we were going to be able to
0: get to it. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> so. um, but yeah, I'll, I'll mention, I'll, I'll bring it up for the, for the audience because I want them to be aware that there is this objection. Um, so, But I can still conceive that, okay, there is a being that whatever is a great-making property, and I can picture some of those, it's, it's a great-making property to have power it's a great making property to have knowledge. Um, It's a great making property to be necessary versus contingent. Um, And then God, this being has those to whatever is the maximal logically possible degree, not necessarily infinite. I don't believe in infinites, but to a maximal possible degree that's conceivable. Even if I can't imagine exactly what is spelled out in, in every way about that or, or, have that definition. So that's a key key difference for that premise. But um, yeah, just for David's sake, there, there is an objection in here uh, that's important because, okay, well, what is or is not a great making property? Is it really greater to exist necessarily rather than contingent? Um, is it greater to exist timelessly rather than temporally? So that that's another objection that uh, sometimes atheists can, can raise. and. Yeah, on that
1: front. Right, so I think the real, the real thing here is that we are the ones defining what great-making properties are. Um, and so, uh, that's, there again is the problem. Uh, we don't have an objective measure of what great-making properties are. So we, in fact, might be entirely wrong about our, about our whole list of what a great-making property is because we don't know we only have our intuition um and so how do i know um i i would think that a great making property would be if you have the ability to keep anyone from suffering from cancer particularly any innocent person from suffering from cancer that you would keep them from suffering from cancer christians don't think that that's a particularly great making property um, we disagree. How how are we to tell?
0: Well, I, th- I think that is a great making property in isolation, the way you've explained it, right? But then there are qualifications, which so that comes down to are, are you just imagining or conceiving that this is a great making property? Uh, have you factored in all of the, the relevant circumstances as to why... All of them why, that
1: I can, but then again, I'm just a human. I can't imagine any circumstance where it's good for a child to be born with a crippling disease.
0: Right, but I, but I can right? Okay, and well then just, you,
1: you must be a well. greater possible being than me. Uh, but <laughs> because <laughs> I, person, I simply yeah. can't. And the fact that we can debate whether that's a great making thing or not means that there's no objective measure. This is just you and I using our best lights to figure out what a great making property is. And so when you're saying that God has all the great making properties, you're starting with a list that you're pulling out of your own tush.
0: No, but I I think we can. First of all, we, we recognize in a properly basic way. You yourself just admitted that you do recognize in a basic way, at the very least, you called it an intuition that, certain things are are great right so okay so you yeah said but that's that my
1: intuition i'm not saying that it's i'm not saying that it is absolutely right it's what i would consider a great making property but that is not in fact the property of the christian god so christians disagree with me on that
0: no but that okay so that so that isn't a property uh, in the first place right so well, it, i kind of think it is sure. it, it is oh, it, it
1: is a, it is a god who it is a god who does the thing that is obviously right and it is obviously right to make sure that innocents don't suffer once again this is coming from this is coming from my idea of what is great though
0: awesome okay so so great guess what you just proved my point so the property is a, a maximally great being in your intuition it would have to be benevolent it would have to be good because it's a great making property to Cure kids of cancer, if,
1: if you can, or whatever. Or to keep uh, them from getting it in the first place. I,
0: or to keep them from getting it in the first place. Great. So that's a great making property, being good, doing right. Uh, therefore, to a maximal degree, that gives you omnibenevolence. Whatever else this maximum degree well, Wait a minute. Is,
1: why do we, why do we, you're, you're jumping ahead. Why do we need that to be the maximally why, – why does it have to be to the to the nth degree? Why can't why can't amazing. a god be god? Um, l- let's say that goodness. By the way, I am not actually agreeing with you that goodness is a great making property. I'm saying well, that that's well, what well, I've pulled well. out of my butt, and you simply <laughs> oh, agree with what like. I've pulled out of there. Um, but the but thing I, is, I
0: wasn't trying to trick you. I, I well, really I'm not trying to trick you either. I'm, I'm just
1: is. I'm just trying to say that these are not objective qualifications. These are things that but we just are. happen to think that are good. Yeah,
0: they are object they are objective standards
1: but um, but, but, but it, look coming coming back to that though, I just want to make sh- make sure that this point sorry about that I hit the microphone folks I just want to make sure that this is um, this point is clear why do you say it has to be maximally good because even if we agree that good is a great making characteristic why can't he just be really good you know he could be better but you know he's really super good. Why? Why isn't that enough? Why does God have to be defined as maximally good?
0: Because that's what the premise says. It, it's. I understand
1: the premise, but uh, but what does that thing? have to do with the God of the Bible? I, um, I'm I'm, I'm okay, not that saying that God that you can't conceive of. Well, actually, I. I I'm sorry, you can't conceive <laughs> of being. but so but David, what does that have to do with the God of the Bible? Why do you, why do you have to go there? I mean, okay. this is this is just a in a an invented criteria that's unnecessary.
0: It's it's not about whether it's necessary or not. It's about what's true or not. So, right, I can conceive of beings that are good but not maximally good. I'm one of them. I do good things and I do bad things. But at the same time, it's also conceivable that there is a being, a good being that has goodness to the maximal degree. So there's, both, there's beings that are both and. And this argument is only concerned with saying, look, it's possible that this thing exists. Okay, this so I'm exists.
1: Not, I have not seen any evidence that it is possible to have goodness to the maximal degree. Because as I said, goodness to the maximal degree would eliminate uh, the possibility of suffering for innocent people. Um, so I don't, you know, so that, now we've got to, we've got to, def- right, we've got to start, right. But we got to start defining what we mean by goodness then, and then goodness to the maximal degree. I don't see any evidence in the universe anywhere of goodness to the maximal degree. I don't see it. So okay, I don't, I don't, I don't have any, separate. but I don't have any reason to imagine that it's possible.
0: No, no, but it is possible, right? Why? You just, you just said it's possible. It's logically possible that God could have cured all. There's there's a possible world in which God cures everyone of cancer before they even get.
1: I didn't it. I didn't say it was possible. That's it. I said that that's what I would um, ascribe to a uh, maximally great being. I didn't say that it was possible. I don't know that it is possible. I haven't seen anything in the universe that makes me think it's possible. Okay, well,
0: I, I think it's it's most people don't play these games like you you've got
1: well this is the the nature of this argument this is one of the reasons i I hate it the
0: same way that you well i i I think that you just like what you're doing you actually do know it's it's good to prevent cancer no you can you don't get to tell me what i know
1: uh, i can tell you what i speculate is good but the fact that i think it's good doesn't mean that it's objectively good i don't believe in objective moral oughts so I d I don't you, you actually can't take a thing that I say I think is good and say that, that therefore that's necessary. It's not necessary. The universe has proven if, if it's proven anything that nothing is necessary. We don't we don't we don't have we don't have a lot of necessities in this universe other than the physical restrictions uh, placed on us.
0: So that's the moral argument. So we'll, we'll say that, um, yes. yeah, put it this way. Most people have a sufficient, sufficiently functioning, uh, set of modal evaluating faculties and just plain faculty, moral faculties in, in the specific example that they know they have knowledge on a balance of probabilities, minimally that something is good and it's greater to have, to have goodness in the maximal degree, rather than just in a, a limited degree. Okay, but I, if even, if I agree, even if I agree,
1: even if I grant it that argument, which I don't, that doesn't match the God of the Bible. And so once again, okay. it's it, you know that gets to that fourth position where yeah. um, what you're describing doesn't look anything remotely similar to the God of the Bible, and what you're describing doesn't seem. Uh, possible to me in my mind because I haven't seen anything in the universe uh, where, where that could be possible. I haven't seen an example of it. I don't know what that would look like. Ma- maximal goodness. What, what would that universe look like? I have no idea. Christians try to describe heaven, but heaven just sounds like a mess. It sounds like a muddled mess that even Christians can't describe because it's a ridiculous idea.
0: Okay, you get getting off topic. I, though, right? Okay, so,
1: but I'm just I'm just you're talking about so that, what we can conceive of. And I'm tra- and I'm trying to explain why I can't conceive of what you're calling maximal goodness.
0: Okay. Yeah, so so yeah, I would just explain that as your cognitive faculties are I don't believe that they really are that defunct. I think that you see it, but you have doubts and you're using those doubts to um, to say you oh i i just don 't know if, if it's if it's good or if it 's possible you know is is power a great making property i i don 't know like it, it it sounds most rational people
1: would not say that and i I think that you okay. most rational down. most rational people are humans yeah so. and so i so why are we trusting human uh, ability to tell us what great making properties are? Because I mean, why would, why would a Christian ever trust a human to do that? Because then we can just define God by what we think is a great making property.
0: Because we have certain faculties
1: that allow us to derive knowledge in various fields,
0: moral knowledge or cognitive knowledge. Uh, you know, maybe it's not 100% in every single case, but if it's on a balanced properties, that's sufficient. And we we do have knowledge. You're, if you're just denying we have knowledge, then yeah, we can throw a all of logic we can throw the argument but as i said most rational people aren't that contaminated and i don't believe you are you, you pay lip service to it but I, I think that deep down you betray yourself when you say look I, yeah I, I know it's a, a a good thing to prevent people from coming to cancer i, I think you have this it's a, it's sort of ex, it seems like you're expressing moral knowledge, at the very least on a of probabilities. And then when I, I use that, you take that away and say, well, no, I, I don't have knowledge. I, I don't know if that's actually good to cure people with cancer. Maybe it's good to kill them all. Who cares? I, I don't know. Like, do you, do you get what I'm saying? Like, I think deep down, you really do have. I,
1: I think that when I say something that you happen to agree with, you call it my properties functioning properly. And when I say something you don't agree with, then my my faculties aren't functioning properly. And I think that you have absolutely no way of distinguishing those two things other than with your faculties. Uh, And we can all take a guess at whether they're functioning properly at any given time or not. Uh, But what we don't have is some objective measure giving us the characteristics of what a God is supposed to be. And all I'm suggesting is, yeah, you and I could agree on two or three characteristics of a God, and that still doesn't mean that's what a God is supposed to be and we okay. and we wouldn't well, agree.
0: Okay, oh, great. So so yeah, let I'll move on to the last point because we're spending a lot of time on this argument, but we this are. is the one you're most prepared for. But yes. yeah, I think most rational people there's always an element of subjective. Everything is subject, nothing is objective in in the sense that everything, all my knowledge, science, history, everything comes through me subjectively as I experience the world. This is beloved Terra's main point about consciousness or whatever be she she twists the meaning of that and says there is no objectivity or whatever but the fact that i come to knowledge subjectively right as a subject that doesn't take away from the fact that there i have knowledge of an external of these external realities and maybe some people are in differing states maybe it's true i'll take you at your world that you actually don't have knowledge, but for the skeptics listening, do, do you know that it is a great making property to, if you have the ability and there are no reasons not to, to heal or to prevent someone from getting cancer? I do, it's just non-negotiable. If you say, no, it's good, let them die, and you don't have a justification for that,
1: then okay, your, your faculties are, are wrong and we just have to leave it at that Everybody's got a justification. For what they do or don't do. It's just a matter of whether you agree that that uh, justification is good or bad. Sure. Yeah, so once that, again, we're, 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 recognizing- we're determining it based on your faculties. And I don't actually care about your faculties. Uh, that's not an objective measure of whether it's good or bad. It's just whether you happen to think it is great
0: no but it's objective god created all
1: of our faculties they they provide us with so that's where you're that's where you're sneaking into the conversation so with with that said that does uh, kind of move yeah well that moves toward the moral argument i don't i don't want to i just want to let everyone know we'll get there um the the fourth point that I promised that I would get to the the contradiction thing. I hope that's what you're about to say. That's what I was going to yes. ask. Yeah. yeah. What is that? So I'll just I'll just throw out uh, one or two quick things, and a lot of this we'll just have to hash out in the comments, folks. Uh, sorry, uh, I don't plan to do a four hour um, podcast today. It's it's yeah. it's Saturday. It's football. Uh, Alabama's playing Ole Miss. Come on. Anyway, um, we won't won't go into as much detail with the other, other. yeah, (laughs) so, um, uh, that said, um, yeah, so that I, I do think that it is in fact contradictory. So the God of the Bible, for instance, doesn't seem to have any maximal qualities, maximal quantities of inequality. Um, so, uh, he can, he can, for instance, change his mind. Uh, which, even though the Bible says he can't change his mind, he does change his mind, uh, and he repents. Now I understand that there are theological workarounds to that, uh, but you know we would we would now then have to spend uh, two hours arguing over the theology of God changing his mind. Um, the fact is, any being that changes their mind. It means that they did not have maximal knowledge of what was going to happen in the future uh, and so uh, that's a bit of a conundrum you can't be uh, all-knowing and yet a god who changes your mind um, an all-knowing God would never need to change their mind or repent of a thing because um, they saw it coming and so they could have they could have set it up so that they would have never had to do to do that thing. So that would, that would be one example. A second example on uh, the matter of power would be that God has an ancient foe. It's not a new foe. It's an ancient foe. And the battle is very close. And, you know, I would actually say the ancient foe is winning. He's won every battle that seems to be recorded. Um, a maximally great being with all power would have certainly dispensed with their ancient foe a whole lot sooner. Uh, so again, that it, it doesn't actually actually make sense to say God is all powerful and yet He has uh, a a strong contender. Um. So I'll I'll just stop there. I think I could get into specific answers, but I wanted to stay as generic as possible, just to give you a broad. Um, brush gotcha. of the, the idea that this idea of maximally, infinitely great, you know, quantities of, of properties don't seem to apply to the God of the Bible at all. Gotcha.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, so, and that's your last, did you want to move on or you wanted me to respond
1: to no, that? Go ahead. You can respond to that. Uh, people should know that there are ways to argue around it. They're just not very good. So you can give them some of those not very good ways
0: sure so so yeah um in terms of the
1: ancient foe the foe is winning though. um
0: that's not what the bible says uh you seem to like there's no verses that says that god is always the winner in advance he is hands down
1: going to destroy satan satan is not his equal he is a creature um except that's not how it looks to us right now
0: that's not okay so, good so, so if,
1: you, if you take i mean never mind what the press release says. The press release says the boxers are going to win, but you still got to have the fight, and through 13 or 15 rounds, the other guy seems like they're winning.
0: Gotcha. So so that's not really taking the Bible, then. It's, it's more taking... It's the problem of evil. You're taking the external evidence um, and saying it looks like Satan's winning. That contradicts this maximal great being. Right, but I've, I've
1: pointed out that the Bible actually does show uh, that... God's power, some so I didn't give a specific example of that, but I felt that Satan would be enough. But, you know, there's the example of, you know, when God couldn't defeat the iron chariots because, you know, their, their chariots were iron and ours were just, I don't know, whether they were made of wood whatever. Um, you know, and the, the idea of God changing his mind c- c- certainly is a biblical idea, and it uh, appears that God doesn't know. Now, once again, you're going to go into, you know, theological... Um, reasons why, well, you know, he only makes it look like he doesn't know.
0: Yeah, from our perception, like this is the way to to read these anthropomorphic or I forget the word, anthro, um, the Greek word for empathy, um, pathios, anthropopathic or pathios. Um, yeah, God is described in, in these ways. And we know for a fact from the context that it's not um meant in that way because there are these clear verses that talk about it's God doesn't change his mind. He is immutable in the sense that his character doesn't change.
1: Right, and I would and I would argue that those clear verses that you're talking about just represent different writers having different ideas of who and what God is. The Bible is okay. simply not consistent on that point.
0: Right, but the, the, these types of things happen with even within the same author. So it, it's clear that they have something in your mind right like that that's why i say you got to you can't just assume these Oh, it's a contradiction you got to actually look at it and you tra-
1: can't assume that it's all consistent you see the reason you think that it's not a contradiction is because you start with a starting point that it must be consistent i can tell you from the beginning of 3000 word article that i write to the end i, I can be inconsistent <laughs> that's that's not that's not that hard to to happen but, you know, you start with a starting point that, you know, if you see that in my writing, well, you know, you're human, you know, a decent writer, but you're human, you make mistakes, and you lost your thread, and you got inconsistent. But if it's in the Bible, well, no, that couldn't have possibly happened there.
0: Well, no, it, it could have
1: possibly happened,
0: but you just have to, again, it, this isn't a show supposed to be on the Bible interpretation, but like oh, you have right. to go through proper hermeneutical principles. There are times um when writers can contradict themselves i I think that there are occasions where i think that is more likely uh, not nowhere near the amount of times that online skeptics you know these nonsense oh 300 bible contradictions and they just paste up a verse and you know intellectually lazily just assume it's a contradiction you got to do the hard work of biblical hermeneutics and systematic. I have done the hard work of biblical
1: hermeneutics and saying you
0: you necessarily (laughs) haven't but I'm I'm saying that you can't just do that I I do think that you yeah it's not about Bible interpretation I'm not going to say whether I think you've done so here or not I, I think that you are wrong about God's repenting um it doesn't say god is literally repenting as though he had done something wrong or that he had changed his mind and done 180 because he wasn't omniscient that's not what the verse is saying it's the same with omnipotence and god's not having the power to overturn iron chariots in the same book where it's talking about god having all this power over all of creation and that sort of thing that's that it's not saying that God was defeated because iron chariots are his kryptonite that that's you reading something into the text, but yeah, it's an interpretational issue. You actually have to look at the text, be fair, read the context, read the, the author and that sort of thing. And I guess, see what biblical scholars have to say in terms of the ancient
1: context. I agree with all of that. And so in a longer discussion where we can look at, um, you know various biblical interpretations and translations, and uh, the yep. broader context. We could have that discussion. I simply gave examples. There's no example sure. that I could have given that you couldn't have made some kind of theological objection to that. I don't have time to deal with.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, so here, I guess for the audience, my last word will be this. That, okay. So David has presented three areas that he thinks are contradict contradictory to the. Um, the maximal great being that the ontological argument proves it's we both admit it's an interpretational issue it's you can't just easily assume that and say oh well the bible said you know david presented this bible verse bada boom bada boom bada boom bada bing that's it that proves a contradictory you actually have to do the hard work and and look at what the author meant by those things so we can leave it at leave it at that that You know you can't just be lazy you have to actually look into these things and see if it's actually saying what david said or if the christian harmonization efforts or you know the there are other efforts to reconcile these things can actually explain or or equally possibly explain the the biblical data
1: i absolutely agree with that all right cool that um, right, right, so was a huge honking, twisty, windy, nasty piece of literature, and you've got to take take literature seriously to read it. Gotcha.
0: Okay. All right, let's yeah, I think that covers the
1: ontological argument. Yes. Uh, let, let us leave the ontological argument. I, I hate the ontological argument. I was prepared to discuss it for two hours, but I do hate it. And, and yeah. to, for the record, there's plenty that I was prepared to discuss that we didn't bring up here. This, is, this truly is the truncated version of it. And so we're going to um, truncate the rest of this even more.
0: Okay, so, um, yeah, uh, cosmological arguments then. Okay.
1: Um,
0: okay, so there are different versions. Remember I said there's traditional and extended. Um, so within the traditional aspect uh there there are again different ways to do this um to categorize or different versions even within the different categories so there's the leibnizian cosmological argument otherwise known as the argument from contingency Um, you know these these arguments typically say the universe exists uh it requires an explanation for its existence that explanation is god uh, it doesn't assume anything about whether the universe is eternal or not. The feature here is, I don't care, it exists, and that requires an explanation. Uh, the Kalam cosmological argument, famous from William Craig, is, okay, well, the universe, again, it's, it's the same thing, really. It's explaining the universe exists, what explains that, but there's sort of a nuance there because it's saying the universe began to exist it's a particular type of thing um and therefore everything that begins to exist requires a cause uh that causes god um and then there are Thomistic cosmological arguments i don't really like those i'm, I'm avoiding those but um there are Thomist scholars, norm geisler uh who just died back in july i believe um he, he's a hardcore Thomist and uh, many catholics like you know, Thomas Aquinas's, things like the prime mover. So it takes a a feature, there's motion in the universe. This was, I think, his first way. Um, Therefore, you need a prime mover and that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, essentially with the tradition, focusing on the traditional cosmological arguments, uh, let's focus on the Leibnizian version. Um, Simply stated in premise format, there's uh, three premises. So the universe exists boom, that's uncontroversial, as as David said. Premise number two, everything that exists has an explanation, or I phrase it this way, mine is different than Craig's, I go into more detail, has a sufficient reason or explanation of its existence, um, either in the necessity of uh, its own internal nature or in an external cause, uh, being a contingent thing. Uh, And then premise three, uh, if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. Um, so, therefore, it Talk follows. Talk about a leap! Talk about a great leap! <laughs> That's that is the most controversial premise. Uh, um, so, it, so yeah, it seems like there
1: are like three or four premises that should be in between there.
0: <laughs> well, there's a lot. That, so I, I've on this particular argument, I've written a hundred pages. Um, so, <laughs> there's a lot that goes into it, definitely, but. Um, to help the the skeptics in the audience, and Christians as well, to, to know if you're interacting with atheists. Um, so so this argument is, is very simple. It is logically valid. It's iron tight. There are no f- fallacies, or, or I don't know, maybe David will give one, but there, there isn't. Like, no one says there's any fallacies on the validity. Um, it really boils down to, are the premises logically sound or not? And, you know, David hit the hit on the bullseye as to the most controversial one it's the same one matt Dill- exactly what matt dillahunty said um because I, I got him in a source but okay so there are f- in order for a co- any cosmological argument to be successful doesn't matter any traditional cosmological argument there are four objections or hurdles that need to be overcome to be successful um so the first one is there is the glendower problem Um, And this is named after a character in Shakespeare. Uh, David, you probably know the play because you're a writer and and into writing and stuff, but um, stories or whatever. But the character Glendower apparently said, look, I I call for ghosts every night. Um, And then someone responding to him said, "Uh, who cares? I do that all the time. And uh, not every other man can do that. That's not not, uh, impressive. But what's more impressive is do the ghosts actually come when you call? um so the the point behind that story is basically it's saying look the the universe exists Yep, i agree um but then okay everything that exists the principle of sufficient reason everything that exists has an explanation maybe the universe existence calls for an explanation like i call for the ghost but it doesn't actually have one um so so that's what premise two of my of the argument as i phrase it in, in that uh, it gets at, right? You, you po- typically overcome that by positing an explanatory principle, a general explanatory principle, such as the principle of sufficient reason, or some sort of causal principle. So in the Kalam cosmological argument, everything that begins to exist has a cause. That It posits a causal principle to overcome this Glendower problem. Um, and then the other three problems apply to the most controversial premise. Okay, if the universe had... Pretend the universe does call for um, an explanation of its existence. Uh, well, if it does, that explanation is God. What? Uh, wow. Um, so, so this is where you have to overcome the other three. So the other three are, number one, there's the taxicab fallacy problem. So, okay, you've got this principle of sufficient reason. I believe it's true. And you've applied it to the universe to prove that God exists. But you can't stop there. You you can't be inconsistent. You can't just abandon the principle. You have to apply that to God. What what caused the first cause uh, or the ultimate explanation or what explains uh, that first cause or explanation? The second one is overcoming the infinite regress problem, an infinite regress of external causes and effects, Um, you know, a bunch of contingent things that never comes to a first cause or that. Um, and then finally, the fourth one uh, is really the most difficult, um, and it's the gap problem. So it's, okay, great, you've convinced me that there is indeed a first cause, and in fact, that it's a necessary, because it has to terminate the infinite regress. So, so overcoming that, it'll get you a metaphysically necessary cause of the universe that explains uh, the universe. Great, that's not God. Um, how do you get how do you get an omnipotent, omnibenevolent, omniscient God out of that? And that that's called the gap problem. How do you bridge that gap? Um, so yeah, that those are the four ways to attack a, a cosmological argument. And if you can overcome them, then it's considered successful in a traditional cosmological argument. So yeah, that's sort of my intro on that that thing.
1: Yeah, I, I also too much? Or? Yeah, that's no, fine. Um, but I almost feel like I don't, I don't really have to say much because the, the holes in it are Swiss cheese-like. And it's, I don't, I, don't think, I don't think that I really have to work that hard. But um, well, I mean, maybe, so uh, everyone, uh, every skeptic that I know of objects to premise one of the traditional cosmological argument. Which is that um, the universe had a beginning. Oh,
0: okay.
1: And um, so that would be, and I think that's the same in uh, the Leibnizian argument, too. If, if, uh, no. Okay, that's no, good. Okay. So, so the, yeah.
0: The, the Leibnizian doesn't assume.
1: It, it just says the universe exists,
0: whether eternally or, or beginning to exist, it, it doesn't care.
1: Okay, It, but it, it so that's fine. So. Starting with the more familiar, the universe has a beginning, that's a good place to object. And you can pretty sure. much stop the tape right there, as far as I'm concerned, because there's no way around it. You can argue all of the science, you can only argue all of the Big Bang cosmology you want. The fact of the matter is, we we still have a lot of definitions to uh, make. For instance, what do we mean by the universe? Um and what do we mean by beginning exactly? So we might can say this instantiation of space and time had a beginning, but if, you know that doesn't mean that the you, the cosmos itself had a beginning. This could be uh, you know in terms of expansion and contraction, the beginning of one expansion, for instance, or in terms of uh, black holes excreting universes from their singularities this could be the 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 beginning from that perspective that doesn't mean that there wasn't something before that uh that is a part of a cycle so uh even if i were to accept that this particular instantiation of time and space had a beginning that doesn't mean the universe uh, capital u had a beginning uh the real and only answer is we don't know um, we don't. We don't know about the beginning. How it began. What it looked like. Uh, what was there before our particular beginning. Um, and so, uh, I think that. I think that anything that tries to go beyond I don't know with a definite answer is an overreach, and I don't. I don't feel inclined to argue it at all. Uh, so I don't. I don't think we ever get to premise two. Uh, premise two in the Leibnizian uh, argument is interesting. Uh, anything that exists has a has a, a reasonable. How did how did you put that? Has a uh,
0: so everything everything. Um, I'm emphasizing that on purpose because uh, there are different versions of this premise. Some stronger, some weaker. Um, so this is the this is the version that Stephen T. Davis gives. Um, my my version is actually going to be even weaker, but. He just says everything that exists has an sufficient. Okay, so his word, everything that exists has an explanation of its existence. Yeah. Either, uh, either in uh, the necessity of its own internal nature, or in an external cause.
1: Okay, so that is, I don't see anything right off the bat to disagree with there. It, gotcha. it seems uh, tautological to me. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. It's it's just saying that everything that is things and has has uh, a reason for why it is great. It doesn't say that you could that the reason is knowable. Um, that's and, it, and it could be an internal reason, uh, that it's self generating, for instance, or it could be external. Great, that seems to cover the the options. <laughs> so, I'm not entirely sure what the point of that, uh, particular, um, uh, what, what the point of that one is.
0: So, okay, so, yeah, the universe, uh, begin, yeah, so you were going on about the Kalam cosmological argument, the universe began to began to exist, um, so that's, as I said, the Kalam cosmological argument, um, would you, so in the first place, you, schol- some scientists take issue with that and argue for eternal models.
1: Yeah, um, and, I, and I tend to... I tend to favor those eternal models, but I just want you to to understand, listener, I'm not a scientist, and mm-hmm. I favor a lot of scientific theories that uh, might end up being very wrong.
0: So but so uh, but I
1: didn't invent I didn't invent the idea of eternality. I, I correct. you know having having read them to the, the degree that I can understand any scientific theory, those make more sense to me these days.
0: Gotcha. So, so yeah, so that's, that's correct. I'll I'll just counter with this. So there are essentially, essentially all scientists, even the ones that believe in, uh, believe in an eternal universe, admit that the evidence, the scientific evidence, makes it much more probable than not that the universe began to exist than that their eternal models are true. Even Lawrence Krauss Uh, i can show you the debate where he says this i sent him a personal email through his website and i asked him for a percentage he didn't give me that but he confirmed he he believes that the evidence makes it more probable that the universe began to exist his eternal stuff is improbable his own model or his own explanation in his book a universe from nothing um but he he's under this mistaken notion that oh well you have in order for the argument to work you have to be absolute 100 percent knowledge that the universe began to exist and no you just need to prove it on a balance of probability so, so- i read
1: the universe from nothing i mm-hmm. i don't i didn't get that from there but i the the real debate with lawrence krauss would be how do you define nothing yeah, yeah. so he doesn't have a definition of nothing that equals the christian non-scientific concept of nothing in fact i right. don't i don't know of any scientist who thinks of nothing as the absence of anything. So um, I, we, we yeah. get into, we get into a lot of definitional um, sparring here uh, when we, when we talk about uh, beginnings and nothingness, because um, you know, there's a, there's a famous debate uh, with some of the, the top luminaries of the day uh, discussing nothing and it's actually a fascinating discussion but you you will find that there's more to it than that but the very simple notion of nothing being the absence of anything is not that's not a particularly scientific idea mm-hmm. and it, in fact it's very it's a very difficult idea to even express or conceive of
0: yeah um so so i yeah like i, I don't really i think that's sort of beside the point it it's true that a lot of scientists, I'll say that. A lot of scientists have co-opted the word "nothing" uh, to to be a non commonsensical definition. It's not the way lay people use it. It's not the way philosophers use it, and they they know that. Um, and I like I think Lawrence Krauss is kind of deceitful, to be honest, um, in the way he presents it, because he's trying to present it. As a question, why is there something rather than nothing? Well, he's not answering that question. He's saying why is there this something rather than a quantum foam nothing or, or something, right? Like a quantum vacuum. Uh, right, the, but I mean,
1: the point that I'm making is that Lawrence Krauss does not believe in nothing. Uh, he doesn't believe in nothing as Christians conceive of nothing. So, I right. mean, his so, his nothing would be, you know, uh, energy states in equilibrium or something like that. But it, it wouldn't be. No thing. So when you talk about universe having a beginning, you can't really say the universe has a beginning in the way the layman talks about universe having a beginning, unless you can conceive of nothing being there before the universe.
0: Well, I, I don't. So I, I agree with you. Nothing is. So I want to say this for the creation out of nothing um, doctrine. Right. That there is no such thing as nothing. It, it's God. It technically, he's creating out of God, right? The, God's power. There, there is, there isn't, a, there is no possible world where there's just nothing.
1: Okay, um, so, so, so th- there again, that's that's a that's a cheat, and this is one of those things why I kind of kind of like the cosmological argument a little bit because you do get to the uh, creation ex nihilo, which I think is an Achilles heel <laughs> for the Christian uh, because it's not the scientist claiming. Nothingness that something came from nothing that is that is not in fact what they are claiming, despite uh you know titles of book titles that sell to,
0: No, but that to that people. is the more probable sci- scientifically speaking, that is the more probable explanation an absolute be. beginning universe defined as all of space and time and its contents. so that could be the quantum foam or whatever that it is more probable than not. Uh, based on the evidence that we have, that it did come out of exist from our perspective, out of nothing, but obviously
1: that that isn't Once possible. again, you're, you've got to define your nothing. And so uh, when they talk about a universe from nothing, they're not talking about nothing as uh, a layman would talk about nothing. So that's, this is what I'm saying about Krauss. I think you're mischaracterizing him because his nothing is different from the nothing that you're talking about. That said... Right. I, I, no, it doesn't matter to no, me he,
0: he's his his definition of nothing it's more more probable that that is false that so there are five types of models that can be used to show that the universe that the universe is eternal or quote-unquote nothing as the scientists call it is eternal um, three of them have been falsified the you gave the oscillating thing that's that's impo- that's falsified in i don't want to say mathematically impossible but there are mathematical proofs that show that that's not true so for example if that was the case we wouldn't have the cmb wouldn't be homogeneous throughout the yeah, entire yeah. universe so look, i just
1: i just want to shortcut you this is very geeky okay. stuff but it's it gets far afield i gotcha. i i, so- I I'd, I'd like reading and talking about this stuff but this this takes us it's far away from it it doesn't matter it at the end of the day what you think you're nothing is because creation ex nihilo um, is, you know, getting back to the theology of the cosmological mm-hmm. argument, is still saying whatever 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 the nothing is on the atheist side is the same as the nothing on the Christian side. Um, okay. And so <laughs> if, if the Christian is saying the universe can't come from nothing, then it creation ex nihilo doesn't work either. Because the Christian is not, in fact, saying that the universe is part of the substance of God and he just picked a booger and made a universe out of it. That's, it. that's not creation. nihilo. it's, it's God taking nothing and making something with it. And that's just as nonsensical as nothing, making nothing, uh, something out of nothing. You're still talking about something out of nothing. I don't care how powerful the magician is. You're talking about a type of additive magic that turns nothing into something. So it, it's, it's the same problem for both sides. I don't care if there is a magician and a hat. There's nothing in the hat. <laughs> so you're still going to have to explain how you pulled a rabbit out of it.
0: Right, so, so yeah, I, I, I will do that on a future show. But, okay, so what we can agree on is, okay, so the, the universe, uh, can, to you, it's contingent, uh, but you lean towards it's an eternally contingent thing. It, it,
1: yeah, I lean that. I'm not look. I'm not married to it. <laughs> it, would, okay. it would actually not matter to me if we proved that there was a mad scientist somewhere in the, you know, whatever the next level of universe is that concocted this universe. That 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 wouldn't actually change the price of a gallon of milk for me.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Uh, so great with the Leibnizian cosmological argument this debate it doesn't matter pretend pretend David's right in the universe is eternal I mean that this argument was invented way before the Big Bang came around so it still works all all this argument cares about is the the fact that the universe is contingent therefore it requires an external cause and that's where we get to a first cause uh, David mentioned some some other options. I'm sorry, about,
1: the Leibnizian doesn't assume a, an external cause. It has uh, it says external or internal, so it can be either one. It doesn't make an assumption. No, but you
0: said that it's it's contingent, right? You agreed it was contingently eternal. You lean towards that as opposed to contingently beginning to exist, having a beginning.
1: Well, uh, yeah, I'm I'm just I'm just okay. saying you can't. I mean, let's not put that on the Leibnizian uh, cosmological argument, it leaves room for uh, external or internal cause.
0: No, not, so the internal cause is wrong. It, it, unless you, so it gets into how does the nature, okay, do you believe that the universe exists logically necessarily? It might. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't,
1: I don't, I don't know. Um, so i I would be careful about my speculation as to whether it is logically necessary in other words, could there not be a universe And the okay. answer is I don't know
0: so let let me I'll I provide I think three possibly four arguments for this. I'll just give one and to see what you think and this is a straightforward one it's not scientific It it doesn't go into the Kalam or anything like that but um you said yourself that you think it, it's conceivable that the universe could begin to exist or it could be eternal like it, you just don't know which one but they're yeah. they're both conceivable options, right like there's there's nothing illogical or logically contradictory not if, to
1: me but I mean, I'm not the fount of knowledge of scientific logic. So <laughs> you know I'm a, I'm is, a layman this, who this picks up his stuff.
0: This, is, this isn't science. this is philosophy.
1: Okay, well, you know, philosophers aren't necessarily the the greatest at scientific uh, truth either. So just because it seems like it could be a certain way, uh, we we must be careful uh, to not confuse that with, therefore, it's logical that it could be that way.
0: Okay, so, okay, well, put it this way then, to, to save time. If it's conceivable, and I, I put forward that it is, uh, I argue for that. I mean, it, it's it's
1: in my mind, it's obvious. In the same way, well, your we lab code is, is as phony as mine, so ne- neither one of us have a lab code here, so I, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter whether it's conceivable no, to you. I have knowledge. Uh,
0: don't don't deno- don't tell me what I know or don't know. Right? I'm, I'm not well, I'm not trying to tell you
1: what you know. But right. But I'm telling you what I'm. All I'm saying is, you're not a scientist. You're no more a scientist than I am. Right. But I can read and understand the sign. The scientists agree with
0: me that both options are logically conceivable, right? We, we, there was a time we imagined the universe existed eternal. Then there was a time when we can conceive of the universe beginning to exist in this standard Big Bang model. So both options are logically possible is all I'm saying. So okay. that would,
1: here, here's we, we, the You and I, you and I have a disagreement on what's logically possible, but I don't want to get too bogged down on that, but I, I want to make sure that. We're not pretending an agreement that, that we don't have. I don't believe that just because you can imagine a thing in your ignorance means that it's logically possible. Or what if I'm not ignorant? What if I'm knowledgeable and that's why I can imagine it? <laughs> so this is why I say you're, you're, we both got our lab coat from the same place. Um, you're, okay. I So So you don't have a right to the knowledge that you claim. Sure, I do.
0: I have modal evaluating faculties that are functioning properly, and I'm on board with all the scientists. So just because you can, okay, for for the purposes of the skeptics or the people listening, can can you say you can conceive of either option?
1: I can certainly conceive of either option, as I've said a number of times. The fact that I can conceive of it, though, doesn't mean that it's logically possible.
0: Yes, it does. Um, no, so- it doesn't.
1: But we've been, we've been there. That's that's a different argument. Uh, but go ahead and go ahead and make your point, um, and I will. What's
0: the point? Yeah, you just said no, it doesn't. So I guess yeah, you're right. Of course, skeptics believe David, right?
1: Well, <laughs> so i I'm, I'm trying to give you room to make your point, but I'm trying to make it clear where we differ here, uh, because you think that the mere conception of a thing equals logical possibility. Yeah, that's, that's by definition the way modal logic works. That's, yes, yes, I, I understand that.
0: I, I get that. Okay, um, so yeah, so that means that it's there's a logically possible world in which the universe begins to exist. There's a logically possible world in which the universe is eternal. Uh, therefore, it can't be necessary. If there's even one possible world in which the universe begins to exist, it is not necessary. Um, yeah, as to whether you can conceive it or not, as a, as a skeptic i don't care that's your fault your problem i can conceive of it i'm on the side of all scientists really there's there's not one scientist that i know of who denies that it's conceivable but, that but
1: compass- just because i can conceive that the universe is not necessary doesn't mean it's not necessary i just might be wrong it, it that i mean that's i don't i don't understand why you don't understand that.
0: (laughs) You're making a distinction between imaginability and conceivability. You're saying they're just imagining it and it's inconceivable. But that's, that's...
1: Yeah, I don't. I so like like Matt Delahoney. I am not impressed with the, the distinction between what one can imagine, what one can conceive of. I frankly don't understand that distinction. Maybe the maybe the listener will understand it more. But the fact that I can imagine slash conceive of a thing doesn't mean that it is logically possible. So if I were to, if we were to both agree that it is not logically possible for the universe to have been. Uh, here eternally that doesn't mean that it hasn't been just means that we are wrong that's all it means even if we even if we agreed it that's all it means even if the scientists uh slash philosophers agree that doesn't we don't have the we don't have the research we don't have the ability to prove that or test that yet that's not a scientific fact that we can that we can state so this is why I go back to the beginning of why this argument doesn't get off the ground. Ultimately, is because we don't know. And that's where it should end. No, the, that's the, wrong. The rest, you, you, of the rest of this is just fun until it's no longer fun. But the fact is, you don't know. I don't know. The scientists who are looking I at know. it don't know yet.
0: I know. Scientists know. We have knowledge. It's, okay. it's not... Empirically tested, right? Neither was Albert Einstein's theory. Pure thought experiments, all in his. I mean, look up the etymology of the word experiment, where it comes from. It was pure thought, 16 years in his head, all in his head. And he was right because he had proper rational faculties where his thought experiments corresponded to reality. So just saying that we don't have empirical. We have math. Is math. Okay, is math. Is mathematics to constitute sufficient objective evidence to you?
1: So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I've gone as far with this as I'm willing to go. Um, we'll pick it up in the comments. Uh, we have some other stuff to, to get to, I think, that would probably more be more profitable than this. I'm, I think that we've gone as far as we can legitimately go that anyone can legitimately go. And I think this is, this is what uh, constitutes the Christian overreach here with the cosmological argument. And once again, Mm -hmm. uh, when you, when you get to something that's slightly interesting, like, well, but God still has to answer for his, uh, you know, what, what he did with his nothing. um, You know, the, the argument turns it's, I mean, it's, it's a nice mental exercise, but you, you get about as far as you can with it. So let me see if I can let me see if I can help the Christian a little bit uh, get past people like me. And just in where does your where does the cosmological argument end? What is what is its um, conclusion? And so once again, one of the objections that I have is that at the end of the cosmological argument, you still don't end up with God of the Bible um, or or any kind of bridge to get there. Uh, and so if I grant you a first mover type being we still haven't really gotten very far because I never said that a first mover type being is impossible I just don't happen to think that that's uh, where the evidence points but it could point there and it wouldn't change my life at all so how, how do you get from there just granting you everything that you want from the cosmologi- uh, cosmological argument you still don't really get anywhere
0: oh okay if you say so
1: um, well, I do. Have... So I'm giving you a chance to show me uh, and the listener, you know, maybe something useful for the cosmological argument, which I have never heard. Uh, so so let's grant all of your premises, which, by the way, kids, you win at premise one. So don't don't give up on that. But give them the premise. What where, where do you get? Um, you don't you don't get to God yet.
0: All right. Um, so yeah. well, am I wrong? You get a metaphysically necessary uh, first cause or ultimate explanation.
1: Oh, praise be to the metaphysical necessary first cause. Right, and then there are other glory be his name. You don't. You don't. You haven't. You haven't given me a god. Uh, you haven't. You certainly haven't given me the god of the Bible. Uh, you have. You have given me what, in fact, uh, many atheists would. Uh, uh, also believe So, I mean, atheists believe. I've, I've heard of atheists talking about first cause. I've heard of Christians, at least not only Christians, talking about first causes that weren't quite the God of the Bible. So, once again, first cause is different from God. And so you still don't get there at the end of this long convoluted argument.
0: Okay. Um, well, yeah, I can guarantee you that I, I do in my solo show. Um with
1: okay. most rational people that agree with me, sure. Um, well, we'll, you know, we'll just have to wait science. for the we'll have to wait for the movie, people. Um, <laughs> because because to date the the greatest minds who have argued this have never gotten us to a god. Uh, so let's see not... what uh, let's see what Dale comes up with. Clearly, yeah. greater than the greatest, the greatest possible mind. <laughs> I can't wait to hear the show
0: yeah um yeah well like I said the greatest possible minds all agree with me uh this this does work uh Richard Swinburne has proven it that God exists from it um, as well as many other smart scientists and philosophers so yeah I don't I don't know I can
1: yeah I so I've seen I've seen probably half as many debates on this as you which is still quite a lot and uh, I seldom see them convincingly get out of the first premise frankly so how many properties, of, okay, fine,
0: I'll, we'll do it. How many properties do, um, do they get to prove about God from this that you've seen? I don't understand the question, sorry. Well, you're saying there's a gap, right? So we get a metaphysically necessary being. Um, that's, that's a property. What else have you seen that Christians get or argue for from this argument?
1: I haven't seen Christians actually win. This is, this is the thing. I, I, you only get that if someone grants you, if, if they just get tired of, of, of going in circles and just grants you certain arguments. I, don't, I, don't, I haven't seen any of this actually proven because it can't be. But, I mean, I can grant you all of the cosmological argument, and we still have all of our work in front of us to get to God.
0: so can they argue for a person not from the cosmological
1: argument sure they can no you can't never seen that in all the debates you've watched well look i mean you can just claim it's a person but the cosmological argument itself doesn't get you to a person
0: okay so uh it does actually because what is the the universe what is the cause of the universe the universe is all space and time Uh, And its contents, physical contents. Right, that doesn't get you to a person. It gets you to a spaceless,
1: timeless, non-physical, necessary being. Wait wait a minute, whoa, whoa. Being, no. The best you can say it does is get you to uh, some uh, instigator of motion, which doesn't have to be a being. I can sneeze and cause a universe. In fact, I might. Uh, We're not sure. Uh, So I may have created many universes by accident. Now, I happen to be a person. The fact is, um, you know, an apple falling from a tree might create a a micro universe for a microsecond. It it doesn't have to be a person that began, that is the first mover. It just has to be something that moves. Who told you a being is a person? Well, but you're you're making the leap that it's a being, and the cosmological argument does not do that. It no, it does it, it do, a being is anything, right? Well, wait a minute, no, it's not. <laughs> so here, I think that you're playing some definitional games. The cosmological argument, in I don't care which version of the cosmological argument. Well, actually, I do care which version because you're, the Leibniz just says therefore it's God, which which is. Kind of, kind of crazy. Um, uh, granting first mover status to some energetic source does not get you to a being. It certainly doesn't get you to a being that we would call a person, and it certainly doesn't get you to uh, something that we would think of as Yahweh. Th- these are these are things that you still have to establish. So just just granting a first mover doesn't grant person personhood
0: i was about to argue for that so it does get us a being i I don't think you know what a being is but that's
1: that's fine maybe we could say we have some disagreement on that technical term
0: okay um so anyway so we have a spaceless timeless necessary being or thing that caused the universe um then from okay what what are the available types of explanations that we have what what are the things that could be spaceless timeless um spaceless and timeless and necessary well we don't Um,
1: know of any such thing like that we don't know okay um yeah we don't there we have no example of anything like that so i mean physically there's there's no
0: scientific this is what rules out a scientific explanation um but there are other there are apps there are abstract or conceptual explanations and they come in two varieties so abstract beings or entities like numbers um propositions that sort of thing and then there are also the more plausible principles so these are what like hindus would believe in like some sort of metaphysical principle that's necessary and it uh the the most um Plausible one is a principle of optimism or optim optimization. So the best type of things necessarily have to exist. Um, so that pr- if that principle was true,
1: that would get you God because it would be best for God to exist. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. We just but, we just we just made this hard left turn back into the ontological argument. Go ahead.
0: Well, this is how atheists try to approach it. So I, I didn't say it was good, but um, anyways, yeah. So there's that type. And then there are personal explanations, Uh, a personal being who would through free will cause, you know, agent causation uh, would cause the universe. In the case of the remaining abstract principles or objects, we know that those from our experience every day we deal with these things, they do not stand in causal relations to anything. They cannot cause the universe or anything to come into existence. In their own right.
1: Say that again. I'm sorry. I um, I, I yeah. Just just say that. Say that last paragraph again.
0: Abstract things do not stand in causal relations.
1: Okay. How do we know that? From
0: our experience.
1: Okay. So if we're just going with our experience, then there is no such thing as a spaceless, timeless being. So I'm I'm not entirely sure what our experience has to do with that.
0: Right. So now, I don't believe
1: that abstract things cause things, don't get me wrong. So people who th- th- think I'm arguing that, I'm just looking at it from the logic you're giving me. The logic that we know that abstract things don't cause things because we don't experience it is, seems like bad reasoning. It seems like yeah, you rule out that experience. You, you use exactly that argument that right. it must be the case uh, that a being must exist like this despite the fact that we don't have any experience of it.
0: Our experience of space and time does not prove that there is nothing spaceless or timeless. Our experience of abstract objects does prove their nature is non-causal, so therefore that we can infer that they wouldn't have causal abilities to cause the universe. That makes sense. I'm reasoning positively based on what we know about these, the difference, the inherent nature of these objects. For the, for the sake
1: day. of time, I will let you finish your thought, but I I just disagree with it. <laughs> so I, I, yeah, yeah, okay. okay. So best I can do there, I think that you are, I think that you were cheating, and I don't have time to unpack that more. So I will, I will let you just finish your point. Uh, yeah, I think I'm done. Okay. Um, yeah, so my point ultimately, and once again, we will leave it to the commenters if they are still awake at this point, is that even if you grant the uh, Christian everything in their argument, you still don't get to a God, you don't get to a being, a person, as uh, we understand persons, uh, and that that requires some leaps to get there. Um, and so I, I don't see the point of any argument that you could grant all of and still not get anywhere, um, which is, again, largely my complaint with most of the um, apologetic arguments. Uh, while we are in the cosmological argument, though, can we can we take five minutes on the moral argument? <laughs> it's because that's one of those uh, that are inside of that, this, this um, this thing that exists, these these moral responsibilities that that demand an explanation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Go for it. Okay. So, um, first of all, uh, I will just repeat the thing that uh, even skeptics were horrified at a little while ago. Um, And so I am going to compound your horror by doubling down on it. I don't believe in moral oughts. So we don't actually get started with that argument for me. Um, we, we don't have any moral oughts to explain. Now, what we have are moral intuitions, uh, and I definitely think that there are explanations for those, but that is a very different thing than what I believe the Christian calls a, calls a moral ought. And so before you can even get started with any premises of the moral argument, I think it fails on, on the idea that there are any moral oughts at all. It's a very emotional argument that tries to get you to agree with them that there are moral oughts because it's, it's a very um, non-intuitive thing to say that they aren't. But I think that what they are doing is confusing moral oughts, ought, uh, intuitions with moral oughts and then cheating the argument from there.
0: Okay, well there's nothing I can say to that. Um, yeah, if it's the same thing before, if you just deny it, then what can I say to argue against it? There's nothing really.
1: Um Well, do you see do you at least see what I'm talking about, uh in in that moral intuition and moral oughts can be confused. Now, for some maybe that's an honest confusion, but I think that for some it's a it's a disc, I think it's a cheat. I think it's an intentional cheat. Uh
0: I do, I don't uh, think that it's,
1: I don't know. Would you acknowledge the difference between a moral intuition and a moral ought?
0: Not necessarily. That's why I'm struggling to answer. Um, I think that people can be confused and think something is the right thing to do, uh, but be wrong about that. Okay, so that would be an intuition, right? Yeah, I guess if you just mean it as a, like a gut feeling, yeah. uh, you, a feeling, you,
1: thing. you, you, well, uh, you know, it would be the closest thing that I would come to talking about a uh, properly basic belief. Now, I don't believe that there's anything supernatural um, going on, and I think that we have things that feel like properly basic beliefs to us all the time. It's just evolutionary uh, the, the, accretion over time of. Uh, learning what the right thing is for society, and you know, breeding out um, people who feel otherwise, and breeding people who are, are going to live in a more harmonious society, um, and ultimately, you know, that you know th- that bundle of chemicals feels a certain way in certain uh, circumstances. I mean, it's our intuition uh, to do certain things. But that is different than saying there is an objective uh, out, uh, other outside of humanly right thing to do in any given situation. so that would be an ought uh, if it were objectively true uh, but I don't believe in objective morality in that sense. so uh, I can only speak in terms of moral intuition, whereas what I would call uh, your intuition that this thing or that should is the right thing to do in this given circumstance, the Christian would say, oh no, that's a moral responsibility so I think that that is a leap that they have to prove and they are, they are simply inventing this moral responsibility and starting the moral argument from there Right, so again, you're just assuming that it's
0: what you call an, an intuition or a gut feeling uh how do you know that i I think most maybe that's the case for you that's why i said i can't get anywhere if you're just going to deny the truth of that premise if and say that you don't that could be true i i I doubt it is from the way that you speak um about the bible cutting it up it it sounds you you carry the voice of authority moral judgment uh you you speak as though there are, are oughts all the time when you're attacking christianity um so it, it, yeah. I certainly, most people certainly know know that there's a difference between the moral knowledge uh, through their moral conscience and just gut feelings. I can certainly tell the difference um, at times when I have actual moral knowledge, um, whereas something else—it's just a gut, a gut feeling. I'm just trying my
1: best, feeling it out
0: as to what I should do. Uh, most have, have you
1: ever been wrong? about something you thought was moral knowledge? No,
0: not that I can think of. Yeah, I've been talking about a moral action. Yeah,
1: So uh, I, I, I think, and I hope that this is causing both Christians and skeptics to rethink their view of the moral argument and why you should not accept the first premise. Uh, the, when the Christian talks about moral responsibility, they are talking about something different uh, than perhaps what you, uh, skeptic, are talking about. And you should be much slower to agree with that. Once again, they're using uh, emotional ideas to manipulate you uh, into agreeing with something that is spiritual and supernatural um, and outside of humanity. Uh, And that's where the argument starts. But there are, and I will say again, hopefully uh, with a a little less horror for you, There are no such things as moral oughts or moral responsibilities. There are moral intuitions. There are, in fact, uh, right paths to chart if you have a particular goal. Uh, If you are trying to, say, increase maximal um, flourishing for the maximum number of people, then there are definitely right and wrong paths for that. Then we get to things that are objective once we've established a goal. The goal itself, though... I argue is not objective, uh, and so uh, yeah, we we could have a very different kind of society. The military has you know different goals than your uh, uh, how uh, your homeowners uh, club. And uh, so they're they're going to go about it in different ways. There, there are different answers for similar problems depending on where you start from and what your goals are. So, um, but that that doesn't equate to what the Christian is describing as a moral responsibility.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, as I said, um, we do have moral knowledge. If, if you're just going to assert we don't, I'm going to assert that we do. And as I said, most people know that this is the case. That's why this argument works. They know that it's wrong to torture innocent babies for fun. Um, they have moral knowledge. It's not a gut feeling. They just know it. Um, and they have that faculty called a moral conscience that tells them this is the case. Um, like the reason I'm, I'm frustrated is like there's no way to argue against this when you just deny stuff
1: you're right Um, there's no way to argue against it because what you want to do is claim stuff so you're saying that i'm denying stuff and i'm saying you're claiming stuff but you know what all i'm doing is pointing out uh where the difference is and so you are right to not argue it with me because i do mm -hmm. deny your first premise and there is you, you are correct in saying that there's nowhere to go but the problem is you can't prove your first premise. All you can do is make an emotional appeal that we all know. And that and that's the end of it for you. But
0: I'm I'm appealing to people on a subjective basis. Do they have moral knowledge? And our moral knowledge of principles or duties in, in certain cases is known through a subjective moral conscience on a subjective level. That's that's the best way to appeal to it. Um so that if you're just saying no, you don't. You, you you don't have knowledge that it's wrong to torture innocent babies for fun. Um, you have a gut
1: feeling saying you don't like it. You have evolutionary imperatives, which which is a little bit little bit stronger than your gut feeling that you're, you know I that's those are your terms not mine. Um, I I get that there's some some polemical rhetoric going on on both sides, but I never. Called it a gut feeling. I don't. I don't think that. That's how I would describe it. I. I do believe that there are evolutionary imperatives, and, and an evolutionary imperative is still not the same as an objective moral ought. Uh, I was talking about this with someone the other day. I. I think that um, we can show that in situations where people are starving to death. You know, p- people starve to death all the time. They starve to death every day. They live around uh dozens or hundreds or thousands or in some cases millions of people they could just eat the people there's no there's no reason for a human to starve to death you're surrounded by food that would keep you alive now why don't we eat other people when we get hungry obviously there's a subset of humans that do but the reason that we don't do it is not because of some uh, spiritual principle that's wrong. We have an evolutionary imperative that keeps us from doing it that would make us rather die than eat another person. Now, that's not a moral ought. That's an evolutionary imperative, and it's one that most people couldn't break if they wanted to. But they're, they're not obeying some inner, inner witness of God by not eating people. How do you know? It seems like you're just okay, but well, but you're just you're just asserting God here. I can at least point to evolution as a driver because evolution is a thing that we can we can trace. I got no evidence of your God, so at least I'm asserting something that exists. We don't have to debate whether uh, evolution exists and whether it can uh, change in shape. How uh, uh, how societies uh, grow and evolve, but but for you to simply say, "Oh no, that's God." That's that's a claim without a foundation.
0: Yeah, just like yours.
1: I mean, you have no evidence, zero. But well, but, I, well, but like I said, evolution. But we agree that uh, on what evolution is, that evolution exists, and that it can do what I suggest it can do. No, we don't. Oh, we don't. You don't agree. You don't think that evolution exists. Say what I don't. Okay, thanks. Evolution does
0: not create moral imperatives. There is no such thing as an evolutionary imperative,
1: right? Sure, it is. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I don't think I understand what you're disagreeing with. What do I mean by imperative? Things that we are driven to do or not do.
0: Driven, determined. Do you mean by driven? So we don't have a
1: choice. Uh, driven, pushed. Uh, uh, yeah i mean so you know can we can we um break away from an evolutionary imperative absolutely we can people can eat other people some do but most of us don't that is for whatever reason bred out of humanity largely that humanity will die before we turn to eating each other that's that's not how humanity is going to survive. Now, I don't. I can't point exactly in the evolutionary record and tell you exactly how, when, why it happened. But it. it but it makes sense that we would evolve that way. <laughs> that we would not, in fact, eat each other, uh, because that would uh, that wouldn't be good. <laughs> that would that would be bad for the species. Uh, so
0: what's so, the di- and we got to wrap it up. Uh, sure, sometime. but I've, so what, what's the I, difference between a gut feeling? You objected to saying a gut feeling and, and this push. The, like what is the difference? Isn't it just the same thing? Well, it's,
1: no. I, well, I think, think intuition reading. is. I think intuition is more than a gut feeling because when you say a gut feeling, you're kind of implying that that comes from nothing, and I'm suggesting that the evolutionary imperative does come from something. Uh, there, there is a traceable reason why we are that way. It, it's not. It's not just an arbitrary. Oh, I think I'll not eat a person today. That's not it at all. So when you say gut feeling, that seems to be what you're implying. But I would take gut feeling over God because we have gut feelings, too. <laughs> we did, we, you, haven't, you haven't produced a God, though. So we've got evolution uh, and intuition. We've got gut feelings. We don't have a God. And so I don't see any uh, justification you have for saying that our moral imperatives come from a God. That, yes. that's, that's something that you just have to assume. And then it, then you take it outside of the natural and say, well, it's not an evolutionary imperative. It's not, it's not something that we evolved to do. It is um, this other supernatural thing. It's a moral imperative that comes from God. No, it's not. Now, you're calling it a moral imperative, by the way. So even if we use the same terminology, moral imperative, I'm just saying that it comes from uh, what evolution uh, has given us, and you're saying, well, it comes from what God has given us. But I at least have evolution to point to as a thing that exists that we don't disagree on. You're just inventing God.
0: All right, good, though. I think, yeah, I think we covered um,
1: everything, so... Oh, no, 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 wait a minute. One more, one more. Sorry, I know that I I've know that there's to... frustration, I, I, but give, give us five minutes just to uh mention the um uh arguments from design. Uh I know that we don't have time to go over it even in the uh light detail, but we mentioned it in the run-up and it's a it's a big piece of the puzzle that I think that people will want to talk about. So just uh just very briefly, uh arguments from design. Um I I will truncate it as much as possible. I'll try not to straw man it. It looks designed, it must be designed. Um, where am I wrong?
0: We can detect design. There there are certain criteria for detecting design. Um, and, yeah, it fulfills those, so that's why we can infer design for certain features of the universe.
1: Okay, and one of the things that I had asked a person on the board a few years ago, I don't remember who it was... Um, is, is there anything in the universe you think is not designed? Because when, when Christians talk about design, what they're really doing is kind of sneaking away of saying, well, everything's designed. So they're, they're not really being ingenuous, I think, when they're, when they're saying, well, this looks designed, because for them, everything looks designed. So is, is there anything in your estimation that's not designed? Yes, you you asked me this as well back when we did the show
0: on the vindication argument. Yeah. Um so yes, there are things that are not directly designed, but in God's providence, yes, everything that happens is designed if because you have a much looser definition, right? It's a a providential type argument that that's that's a version of the teleological argument that everything that happens happens providentially or was designed to happen that way from god so in that sense
1: yeah so it, be- that, it becomes kind of a presuppositional argument yeah well
0: that's why i don't i don't use the argument from providence or something but um yeah there could be ways of possibly proving that god that this providence thing is is true, I, right. I just don't know. I haven't seen a, an argument like that. So I don't, that's, I don't want
1: to, cool. I don't want to steal your thunder because I know you're going to do individual shows on these things. I just wanted to introduce them and the the type of design yeah, that's, argument that's, that most people are inveighing against, just as I did there, is this providential idea that everything is designed. When Christians talk about design, what they really mean is everything is designed, everything is God, and so you can never actually get them to point to anything that's not designed. Uh, and therefore God, it's always God. It's just, it's a, it's a way of arguing presuppositionally, um, and kind of making it seem like you're arguing something else when you're not. Um, there may be a more scientific way to argue it and, you know, sometime in the season, maybe we can get to do that. But, um, that's just kind of a hit and run version of what the argument is and why, um, why, why i think it's the easiest one to defeat or at least dismiss
0: yeah okay okay um yeah I, I would just say please audience like i i'm sure you can tell I, There is a point in this thing where i'm sort of deflated because i i was worried i didn't want to do an overall show in advance because i i'm i was afraid i know the way some skeptics some of the skeptical listeners are and just please take my solo shows seriously. Give give it an equal shot. Um, I I provided uh, in detail depth reasons for my arguments, and I was I was afraid because I know the way. Like I think when when David just I don't know uh, what what was what was it when it fell apart. It was the um, oh yeah that it's po- logically possible that. The universe begins to exist versus doesn't, and and just say, No, no, it's not. Like, I know all of the skeptics are gonna be like, Yeah, no, they're not.
1: There are plenty of skeptics that uh, are much more uh, attuned to modal logic than me. That's that's simply not true. (laughs) That it's sort of
0: if when we do it this way, Val would
1: agree with you, Val, yeah, Val
0: would, but yeah. Right,
1: <laughs> so that I mean, but you're I, you're defeated too easily. Val would agree with you. Val is smarter than me uh, on this stuff. I have no problem admitting that. But I may argue my point a little bit better than you. So what this gives you is the opportunity to fine tune your arguments so that it gets around. I, I echo Dale's uh, plea to the listener: please give his solo uh, shows uh, serious due attention, just as I will. Uh, because maybe now that Dale can see what some of the objections are and how they're argued, he can he can work around them a little bit better and make a better case. I'm interested in hearing it. I, I think the people who spend the time to listen to the solo shows are also interested in hearing it. Um, but this is where I am right now. I suspect this is where a lot of people are right now. So this shows t- this you where your starting point should be. But by all means, I'm, I'm looking forward to these solo shows that go into more detail. Also understand, neither one of us can, can be declared winner or a loser here. We've spent so little time on each of these things. There's so much more, even without preparation, that I could have said about all of these arguments. Yeah, yeah And, and I know there's so much more that Dale could have said about all of these arguments. There's, there's more to it. Val would agree with Dale. On a lot of this, he would not agree with me, and Val is smarter than me in in these areas. I mean, un, if I had any regrets, it's that I couldn't get Val to argue these things with Dale. That's who that's who should be doing it. Um, but uh, yeah, by all means, uh, look forward to the uh, solo shows. I do, and um, you know, let's let's see what Dale can come up with.
0: Cool. Yeah, yeah. That's that's my only request. So yeah, I, ho- I hope you guys will. Give it a shot. See, see, because there are answers. I, I, like I said, I've written up 100 pages on this, you know, in detail for the the things that David is going over. So, So, yeah. um,
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that that these are solo shows for Dale and not duet shows is because I'm not a big fan of Christian apologetics. Mostly because I do believe that it's one of those situations. This is a true belief that I have that. Even if I grant all of the Christian apologetics, it still doesn't get us to the God of the Bible. You still need theology to bridge that gap. And so I'm much more interested in arguing the theology than the first half of the bridge. I, I just, I personally don't care about it. But a lot of you will, and there's a, there's a lot of interesting things to be mined there. Gotcha.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm, if the audience will do that, I'm, I'm happy. So.
1: Yeah. yeah, I find this to be an audience that uh, listens to a lot of stuff that I didn't think they would be interested in, and they interact with the uh, modules that are presented, uh, and when they comment in the comment sections, uh, they quote from those modules or from the blogs. This is actually one of the more intelligent and engaged audiences uh, on the internet that I have seen, and I am honored uh, that you are a part of our site. Thank you.
0: All right, all right. Yeah, uh, good, yeah, very good. I don't have a great week. <laughs> okay, I don't so next
1: week is going to be Michael Brown. Oh, that's right. Yeah, um, if, if and, no uh, yeah. <laughs> barring any technical issues, it, it will be Michael Brown. I'm not saying that we won't come back and do Tony Costa at some point later this year, but we are going to move forward with our schedule. So we've got Michael Brown next week, and then the week after that, Randall Rouser is uh, has agreed to come and um, talk about the theological uh, challenges of uh, the young Earth versus old Earth uh, theology. So uh, many of you will remember we had uh, there was Ken Ham on the Unbelievable Show, uh, and uh, was it Jeff Williams, Jeffrey Williams, Jeffrey somebody? Uh, on the on the older side, Ken Ham obviously the young Earth side. Uh, Randall wasn't really happy with that particular discussion, and I actually took up Ken Ham's part uh, largely by saying, "Yeah, Ken Ham's an idiot, but he's right on the theology. Uh, and if we go old Earth, we've got some issues. This is a stance that." Of course, Randall Rouser does not agree with, but uh, and he feels that there are a lot of people like me who left the church largely because of this issue. He's partly right about that uh, when it comes to me, so he's agreed to come on to the show and uh, talk about that. I've got a feeling, even though the season is young, that's going to be one of the best discussions of the year, so make sure you tune in for that. After that, uh, we're not scheduling any guests. It will be Dale and I on prayer. See you then.
0: All right, bye.